Hello, and welcome to the Spill Your Guts Christmas Special. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. This episode is special not only as we celebrate Christmas, a time of year rife with ghosts and the jingle of Krampus' bells, but also because this marks the end of Season 1 of Spill Your Guts. We hope you have enjoyed getting to know some of the most talented artists working in horror and look forward to seeing you all again in Season 2. We'll be back a little later in January, bringing you more conversations with the titans of terror. Until then, thank you for listening. Now, let's talk about one of the most beloved subgenres in film, Christmas horror. Though it may seem a little dumbfounding that a holiday about love and giving and goodwill towards men could be rife with so much potential for terror, it's all those traditions and rituals that make it perfect for exactly that. A strange man who slides down your chimney and makes moral judgments about children, haunting bells and eerie choirs, And one of the most famous ghost stories of all time happens to be one of, if not, the most famous Christmas story of all time. I think you know the one I'm talking about. I'll give you a hint. There's more of gravy than of grave about you. For this episode, I am joined by author Matthew Dupay. Matthew is an aficionado on all things Christmas horror and recently published an extensive and wonderful book on the subject called A Scary Little Christmas, A History of Yuletide Horror Films. Matthew and I talk about why Christmas horror has such resonance with audiences, the beginnings of Christmas horror on film, and go through a naughty and nice list of some of the best Christmas horror films and some that will be getting coal in their stockings. From all of us here at Spill Your Guts, we wish you a very Merry Christmas, filled with cheers and frights. Now, let's get some milk and cookies and curl up by the Christmas tree as we explore Christmas horror with Matthew Dupay. Hey, Matthew. Kevin, how are you today? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing great. Busy time of year, but but everything's going really well at the moment. And uh, I, no, yeah, no complaints on my end. I would have guessed it'd be a busy time of year for you. It's uh, you write a book about Christmas horror movies, and it's what two weeks less than two weeks till Christmas. Less than two weeks. So so lots of stuff on the agenda, but also trying to enjoy the season. Yeah. You know. Uh, as well yeah it's one of those things where i like i think safely now we can call you an expert on christmas horror that's it that's it that that word has some heft to it doesn't an expert but uh you're an expert on christmas horror movies that's uh so you literally wrote the book on it well i i I really appreciate that kevin It, it was a really long um you know all things considered a really long process And, you know, as well as I do, you know, writing projects of this magnitude are always really difficult, Um, especially being acquainted with your subject for that long of a time can be really taxing unless I found out unless you really, really love it. Right. So uh, as difficult as it was, like anything, um, I am happy to tell you that, you know, really the two years I spent doing this really were for, you know, 98 percent of the time, just really, really good time. Um, whether that was talking to actors, directors, writers, or researching some of this stuff and re- watching and rewatching these films um, really gave a whole different level of appreciation. And I will tell you, I was thinking about this the other day, watching these out of cycle, you know, like doing a silent, like deadly night marathon in May um, doesn't sound like the greatest time, but I'll tell you it, that, that kind of shift in perspective also, I think really helped me, um, throughout the process, which, uh, I, I, I really wouldn't trade for anything at, at this point. What was sort of, um, 
the beginning for you of, you know, not not specifically Christmas horror, but just falling in love with the horror genre in, itself? That That's a great question. You know, for me, I grew up during the kind of the beginnings of the VHS market surge. And uh, when I was growing up at that point, uh, I was on the East Coast of the U.S., just outside Philadelphia. And I had an uncle who was just he was a horror fanatic. But he loved all the classic like Universal Monsters and, and some of the Hammer Studios stuff. And he was always telling me like, every time I saw him, he was just telling me about these you know different films, none of which I had seen. But the way he described them was so entertaining and so fascinating to me. I couldn't help but like search these things out, start watching them. And I, I bet looking back at it, I was probably like six or seven years old in, in, in that frame. And I had a brother who was about three years older than I was. So a lot of the stuff he was saying, uh, of course, was way out of my league. And again, he was telling me about these things. And it was this magic of just hearing about, A, these types of films that existed, but B, seeing how excited and how much joy that horror films brought these guys. And from that point onward, really, I spent probably all of my youth focusing on watching horror, seeking out new horror. Um, I mean, I watched all of it, the old stuff, the new stuff, foreign stuff, uh, even went through a spell of like Godzilla film. I mean, all I just took it all in. And I found myself at the same time kind of reading as much as I could about, uh, you know, these films too, um, whether from old like monster magazines, um, famous you know, film land monster type magazines. Uh, Fangoria, of course, was available. And a lot of the older kids in the neighborhood would have copies. And I, I, I was pretty much more interested in, in in that kind of content than the Playboys yeah. that they were stashing under the mattress, <laughs> you know. Um, so that, you know, for me, that's that that's kind of where it started. For a lot of people, there's there's sort of that seminal publication and it often has to do with your age you know for some people it's four sacraments famous monsters for some people it's fango now i'm sure for some people it's things like rumor or or <laughs> bloody disgusting it's not even a magazine but i think every generation has kind of their for me it was fango for sure i was a fango kid through and through it was like getting your hands on, an, on a copy of fangoria was like a very exciting thing because you know and i think it's funny that that probably might not be as familiar to some younger people is like in the time that you and I are talking about, like you didn't know a movie existed if you didn't read about it in a book or a magazine. It wasn't like you, you weren't Googling that shit. That's <laughs> so right. That's a great, it was that act, that, that act of discovery when you'd get a book or a magazine and read about something and be like, Whoa, that sounds great. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't, but, <laughs> um, well, particularly when it came to some of the movies that were, we're in Fangoria. Um, but um, so when did that love of Christmas horror develop? And, and was that through Christmas, specifically Christmas horror films? Or was that from books? Or or, or how did that kind of begin? Yeah, you, you know, I, I was thinking back about this. And what I think was happening, like by the time I got to high school and we would have, you know, me and my friends would do the occasional all-nighter horror movie marathon on the weekend, you know, to have different themes and stuff. But, you know, of course, October is a huge month for uh, watching horror films and, and really enjoying the season. 
And growing up on the East Coast where, you know, there's a change in season um, that's pretty distinct. Really, you you hit this period like post Halloween, you enter November, everything's kind of hectic leading up to Thanksgiving, at least down here. And I was just craving something to get me in between, you know, October to Christmas. I started checking out some of the classics, whether it was Silent Night, Deadly Night or Silent Night, Bloody Night, even earlier. Um, And I was like, this is just amazing. So I would dedicate, you know, at least at that time, maybe one weekend in between November and Christmas to have a Christmas horror movie uh, marathon. And every year really going forward after that, I just made it this kind of ad hoc tradition. No matter where I was, uh, there was a period in my 20s when I traveled quite a bit, especially outside of the United States and, and North America. And I had Christmases kind of all over the world. And I got to see this perspective of, um, you know, Christmas is not so much just a singular day. It's almost a much wider scope. Like I know some authors call it, you know, Christmas is a frame of mind. And it, it really started to make sense to me. You know, it's at that point, the three weeks leading up to Christmas has been expanded even greater. You know, now, nowadays you look at this phenomenon and it really starts like November 1st forward, you know, you get two full months. And I think the second Halloween is over boom, right into Christmas. Exactly. And I wanted to really recognize that period of time, you know, as, as not something that would be stressful or unfun or, too Christmassy or too over the top. And for me to balance it out the right way was really to celebrate, you know, the season with, with what I love, which of course is, you know, horror films and everything about the genre and, and, and really kind of merge the two together. And I, I I feel like I've successfully done that as as I've gotten (laughs) older. (laughs) When I was a kid, and I'm not even talking about like that young a kid. <laughs> my uh, my family always used to joke that I, I never liked the summertime. I always thought, and the reason I didn't like the summer was one, I hated the humidity. When it was humid, I'd just get stressed out and grouchy and miserable. And I'm still like that about humidity. And the other was there's no holidays in the summer. So I, because I loved Halloween, Christmas, particularly those two, but I also loved Thanksgiving and I loved that, that whole period to me of being in September when you're, you know, you go back to school, it's like, oh, I'm back to school, but you're like, but that means Halloween and Christmas. And so that whole time when you're a kid is very exciting because there's all these big events happening. You're headed back to school, soon will be Halloween, then it'll be Christmas and then I was a big skier, so I enjoyed the winter season out here because I would ski. And then so I, I it was like I'd get, have to get through the summer. When all the other kids are excited for summer, I was like, oh, man, summer. Like, um, And a big part of that, I think, was just it's not just it's like you said, it's not just that day of Christmas that I loved. It was everything about it. The. And I think it's the, I think for the a lot of people who love Christmas horror, it's the, it's that that transference is there of that there's so many things about Christmas, whether it's family traditions or the customs, you know, like Christmas sweaters and the food and, you know, beyond the cool things like, you know, presents and stuff. There's just so much stuff that comes with Christmas, so much nostalgia. And, and 
I think movies capture those feelings well. But for you, why do you think Christmas horror is such a great combo? I mean, it really, like, Christmas and horror go together like rum and eggnog. It's just, like, this perfect combination. Why do you think that is? So I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with how you laid it out. You know, there's so many important aspects of, of, of Christmas. And, you know, a big thing I learned early on is, yes, Christmas um, in, in, in one lens is a Christian holiday that's, you know, celebrated distinctly in between the 24th and the 25th. But there's so many other aspects of it that it becomes a social phenomenon. There's non-Christians that, you know, hold certain things dear. Um, I know a lot of non-Christians, for instance, that just adore Christmas trees or Christmas bushes. And they do the whole ritual, um, uh, you know, decorating and lighting them. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, one thing that I think everybody, you know, from the religious side of the spectrum all the way down to non religious is they respect the fact that the season really is trying to generate legitimate feelings of positivity, joy and happiness and a, and a sense of, t- of togetherness. And whether that's family or, um, you know, friend circles and stuff. I mean, how many people do we know uh, that I either can't travel to see family for various reasons and they're, you know, tight knit group of friends or neighbors or always around Christmas. There's this heightened level of charity and kind of goodwill. And really, as you go down that list, everything about it is kind of on the positive side of 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 the spectrum. And I think subconsciously, a lot of people find that attractive and that, you know, where you have that kind of um, established and you've got this merger of horror coming into it. It's like the almost the biggest fear one would have is not to have anything ruin the holidays or not to have anything ruin Christmas let alone, you know, being stalked and murdered or seeing your family stalked and murdered um, or something truly horrific. It really elevates everything. And I think because there's so many icons of Christmas, it's very easy for filmmakers to be successful in portraying that sense of security, of that sense of togetherness and kind of family bonding, all that positive aspect. So when you introduce these darker themes to it, really, really has an amplified, oversized impact that is just phenomenal. It's just, I think a lot of people relate to it on many different levels. And do you remember the first Christmas horror film that made a big imprint on you? If I looked back and thought like really hard about it, I would actually say, um, you know, as much as I would like to say it was Gremlins, because I can tell you, I definitely saw that um, at a very young age. To me, it didn't correlate at the time, Uh, you know, even though it was overtly Christmassy, it didn't register to me in my young brain that, you know, that was a Christmas horror film per se. But I think the one that I can tell you that impacted me was definitely Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, and I know uh, there's a lot of different perceptions about the quality of the film and, 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 and whatnot. But arguably the first time you watch that, and if you're of an impressionable age and you see um, 
you know, what we now recognize as the dark humor aspect of it. But when you're watching it for the first time and soaking it in, it can be a truly dark and horrifying movie. And to me, that left a very um, deep impression, but not not like a negative one. Like I enjoyed it as much as it disturbed me. I, I, I found myself really enjoying the fact that, you know, they shot it in Utah. You look at those landscape exterior shots and you just know there's something special about it. You know, they didn't shoot it in the valley or, uh, you know, slightly north of Los Angeles or somewhere else. It just ha- it just captured this uh, texture that we weren't really accustomed to seeing stuff shot in Utah of all places. So there's a lot of like intricacies that really stuck out to me uh, yeah. when I watched that. And it just felt like it was something special. Um, it's something I always kind of cherished after I watched it. I mean, the poster is so iconic at this point. And I remember seeing it in the video store and there was something about it at a young age where I was drawn to it. But at the same time, it, it, and I was watching pretty heavy horror movies at this point. And, but there was something about that poster where I was like, I don't know, like, I'm not sure how I, if, is this going to be too much? Or, you know, Christmas was such a sacred thing that I was like, Gremlins I could handle because Gremlins was, it was, overtly fun and comical and you know what i mean and and it pushes its pg rating i will say that like that story about about her father dying in the chimney is as dark as it gets um that's like that's oh my gosh that part of that movie to this day it kills me that that i don't think that they would let that in a pg movie at this point in time i think that that story is so dark and so it's just so alarming when she tells that story that I think they would deem that too intense for a PG movie these days. I, I, I definitely agree with you. And, you know, in terms of the post, the iconic poster for Silent Night, Deadly Night, um, you know, it's a great point. Which it, you made the cover of your book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's it's so recognizable. The, the publishing house, um, I provided them about 12 different uh, potential covers that I thought would work well. And, you know, they... E- Nothing for them. I, I might as well have just provided one uh, <laughs> because you know they, they were just dead set on it. But you know it's so iconic that the director of yeah. All Through the Night, um, I think it was 2015, um, actually was so inspired. He had never seen the film. He, like growing up um, and through high school, he had only seen the poster. And he ended up writing a play for his high school. Uh, and it was kind of his version right. of a story just based on looking at that poster. And his school, of course, banned it from, from running. Um, <laughs> but fortunately for him, I believe it was his vice principal, like intervened and saw how much work he had put in and saw how creative it was and let him put the show on. Uh, and it was interesting because of, you know, maybe 10 years later, he, he made the feature film, which was a psycho Santa picture. And really it was just born out of him seeing that poster, that poster. which is really cool. It's Santa Claus going down the chimney and he has an ax and it kind of, and he's going into the house and it kind of, it captures the iconography of this, this guy, Santa, and the idea of like, what if if he were a sinister figure? You know what I mean? Which which I think now has been kind of usurped by the Krampus mythology. Krampus is kind of 
you know, because there was no Krampus movies when I was a kid. At least not that I can recall. You might be able to correct me on that, but I don't remember there being any Krampus movies in the 80s. Yes, that, that's correct. So what do you think was like the first Krampus movie? Uh, one of the first ones, actually, um, I believe there was some introductions of the character in some shorts. And one of the first features, I do believe, was made by a crew of filmmakers out in western Pennsylvania. Um, I think they're up by the Lake Erie area. And if, from what I recall, that script, that whole idea was just... Um, you know, around that time, 2011-ish, 2010, we start to see the introduction of those famous postcards um, from Austria and other, you know, capturing that art um, from the 19th century and stuff. And yeah. as that kind of proliferated into North America you know, via the Internet, it really became an instant, you know, idea generator for filmmakers, especially on the low budget side. And I believe it was the guys in Erie that had put out the first feature. Um, they didn't do, if I recall correctly, they didn't do a whole lot of research on like the legend of Krampus. Um, they kind of saw the, the the imagery and thought, all right, well, we can work with this. It's kind of cool. Um, and did their own thing with it. And Yeah, the horns and he's kind of a demon and all that Yeah, stuff. that's right. And it's like there's an appearance by, you know, a, a St. Nicholas type character that's fairly... Um, malevolent as well in those. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that, that crew of filmmakers were really into crime thrillers. Uh, they had actually made a couple crime thrillers before their foray into Krampus. So they kind of merged the crime thriller cop drama with Krampus. And I know it never really played well in North America. Um, that's, that, you know, if they were here with us today, they'd be kind of saying the same thing. I'm not diminishing their work by any means, but what was what the name I, of this film? Um, I think that one was Krampus, the Christmas devil was um, okay. uh, the film in question. They did make a sequel. Um, they had a tougher time making the sequel just due to logistics, a little bit bigger of a production. But what's interesting is, and I know these films get a lot of critique from North American audiences, but what I found really interesting was uh, they played Believe it or not, they played really well in Europe, of all places, where you think they would be a little bit more, um, like their sensitivities would be a little more acute. Um, but they really enjoy them to the fact that those filmmakers get notes starting in November, December, every year from someone new, you know, discovering it in Europe, uh, because it's such a different take on it. And it's Americanized and it's gritty and it's got guns in it. And it just strikes this interesting chord with them, uh, you know, the audiences in, in Eastern Europe um, that we really didn't experience here. Like North America, the audience, you know, or even in the ratings um, for any of the films are usually pretty low on any of the platforms. And um, I mean, to the point that you will you'll, you will often hear these films be described as like, some of the worst Christmas horror films ever made. Um, you know, they kind of fit into that category. Um, yeah. But they do have an interesting life cycle from what I discovered. Well, it's funny, too, because, like, you look at how many Krampus movies came out after Michael Doherty's big Krampus movie that 
that we'll be talking about a little further here, but, but, um, you know, and there's so many Krampus movies now of varying degrees of quality, um, mostly on the lower end, but, uh, um, but you talked about, you know, a movie like Silent Night, Deadly Night, you know, beginning kind of this love of Christmas horror gremlins, I think, you know, probably was part of that. Um, you know, for me, I remember I saw, and this is a movie people don't have a ton of affection for, but but I really, to this day, really admire is Christmas Evil was one of the first. And I, I, I remember seeing that movie and being like, oh, this is really smart. Like this, I was probably 12, 13. So I was old enough to know, you know, I was kind of past the kind of just the gore. And that at that age, I was starting to enjoy movies that had a little more going on and then. I remember seeing Christmas Evil and being so fascinated by the idea of this movie that because if you watch that movie as an adult, you realize it it's really kind of a psychological thriller more than a straight ahead horror picture. I mean, this is really the more the story of a guy losing his grip on reality and 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 of course that wonderful ending that I won't spoil that so for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, the movie has a I think brilliant ending. But I saw that movie at that young age and I was going around saying to all my friends, have you ever seen Christmas Evil? And nobody had seen it. And and I didn't know it was a very kind of not super well-known movie. I, I managed to get my, because I had bought it out of one of those bins, you know what I mean? At like a, a store was getting rid of it. And I've got, I got like a $5, you know, sort of shitty copy that the tracking was all constantly buggy. And, um, but I loved that movie and I used to watch it constantly at Christmas and, and, developed sort of a roster over time of, you know, Christmas Evil, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, I think actually I saw Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 first, which is... okay. So I admired it so much more than when I saw the first one. I was like, wait a minute! (laughs) (laughs) I've seen all of this. Um, uh, And I actually do have some some affection for the second one, even though the clip show part is, you know... Yep. But those the poor guys that made that, they didn't have anything to work with. Some bubble gum and some duct tape is all they gave them to make that movie. So, totally agree. Um, but uh, you know, I, I so I think that for for a horror fan though, Christmas horror becomes part of your Christmas tradition is what are your Christmas horror movies? Cuz I have, you know, my my spouse and I will sort of decide is it is it a straight ahead Christmas movie night or is it a Christmas horror night? Usually it's a Christmas horror night. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think, you know, that people can build traditions around their favorite Christmas horror movies now. And whether that's Gremlins or Krampus, uh, you know, because which is developed into a tradition now for a lot of people or whatever. But, you know, horror fans love their paraphernalia and stuff like that. Do you have any sort of traditions around horror at Christmas time that you practice? Movies well, that you revisit every year or anything like that? That's a wonderful um, question. And, and and I'm really happy to hear um you know, you mentioned your traditions. It, it It is a lot of fun, you know, and what I am really excited to see each year and, and it grows more and more each year is the introduction and the sharing of new traditions among the horror community. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this notion of a horror movie advent calendar, it's brilliant. Um, I have some friends that um, make art out in Minnesota. And one of the things they created this year was a horror movie watch list advent calendar. This is brilliant. Um, There's so many great films to select. There's so many great films to kind of make sure that you revisit each year. And for me, um, I definitely have a couple traditions. Um, It kind of goes without saying, but like 
Black Christmas 1974 yeah. gets rewatched uh, at, at, at least once, if not twice each each year. But every single Christmas Eve since it's come out in 2018, um, my family and I, uh, who, who interestingly are not, you know, predispositioned to watch a ton of gory horror. But we do. Oh, really? Um, yeah. But we <laughs> did have, you know, some that we really enjoy together. And one of those is Santa Jaws uh, by Misty Tally. Which was one of I mean, she was one of the first female, if not the first female director of one of sci-fi's original shark films. You know, I have a copy of that movie and I've never watched it. It's it's I'll have to I'll have to watch it. It's a lot of fun. And I'll tell you, every Christmas Eve we watch it and every Christmas Eve we, we just it it's highly entertaining. Tell it, me the premise of Santa Jaws, please. <laughs> so so what makes it even inter- you know more interesting is is there's like a sci-fi element to it too. That with um so of course this is around the same time where like Stranger Things uh, the first season was kind of getting off the ground and, and, and other similar uh, stories were being told like paper girls in, in, in the comic books and stuff. And uh, what takes place is you've got this core group of young characters, I think early high school years. Um, and they're um, aspiring comic book artists and much like, you know, Krampus where the kid rips up the letter and kind of ruins his Christmas tradition uh, the main character has a family dispute, kind of a minor thing, and he's prevented from going to this, you know, comic book Christmas party or whatever. And his grandfather had gifted him this special pen. And he kind of starts drawing these pages of what he wished would happen. Well, everything he draws comes to life. And one of the things that he had, he had been working on was this Santa Jaws comic book. And so he inadvertently, by breaking his Christmas spirit, he conjures up a real Santa Jaws that goes around town and just happens to, you know, annihilate each of his family members one by one. It's absolutely great. And there's, um, you know, every time the shark kills somebody, there's a new piece of Christmas paraphernalia that it ends up getting, whether it's um, a string of lights or at one point it has this giant candy cane looking pole sticking out of its head. Um, all sorts like of normal. stuff. It's yeah. absolutely awesome. I pictured like when I heard the title, like one of those, I, I thought it was going to be like a beach movie, like a Christmas right. beach. Movie. I didn't, that was sort of how I saw that in my head, but there's, you know, they've had sharks everywhere now in the sand and the snow. <laughs> and the space, like, Yeah. They, though that animal has been more places than Jason Ward. Um, <laughs> Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check it out. It sounds. It sounds like. A, it almost sounds like. Um. Who was that kid's the page master? You remember that movie yeah. with Macaulay Culkin? It was a right. cartoon where like saw things and they would come to life. That's it's like right. a. It's like a Christmas horror version of that. Um. Now, so you have this love of you know these movies and the tradition. What made you decide like the commitment to write a book? People might not know this if they've never written a book, but it is a lot of work to write a book let alone like how many pages is your book? Uh, it's almost 400 pages, 400 pages. And it's, it's, it's 400 pages of r- deeply, deeply researched material. So you're not like it's, this is not an opinion book where you're just pulling it from kind of your own thoughts. You had to go and talk to all these people about all these films. And, you know, did you sort of, I'm curious, like in the beginning, because I know there's a sort of a lot to unpack about why a person decides to write a book, but 
I'm curious of what was that sort of turning point where you kind of go, because I know for me as a screenwriter, when I have an idea, there's there's that period where I'm kind of courting the idea. And I'm like, is this worth sitting at the computer, strapping myself to the beast and get and actually putting this thing into into the world? Am I going to buy? Am I what's that? There, and there's a tipping point. And usually for me, that tipping point is something like, do I think there's actually an audience for this idea? Um, what was the tipping point for you about the decision to actually go and write this book? So for me, it was, uh, it, it actually came to me quite suddenly. It, it, it was the Christmas season of 2018 and it was about late November and I was doing my normal kind of preparation for, um, you know, the Christmas season. And, and in fact, I believe I was sitting down and going through Blu-rays and DVDs and kind of organizing stuff. And at the time I had been writing a lot. I'd come off of several years, if not like 12 years plus of, of writing a lot of academic stuff and lots of deadlines, lots of, um, rather stressful subject matter, you know, foreign policy related issues, humanitarian crisis, um, kind of sad, really sad. Uh, um, as a, a far cry from the subject matter of this book. Yeah. yeah you know, stuff yeah. that in my opinion, if you spend too much time in that space can really wear you down. And, um, in, in fact, I was working on a piece at that time and it had to deal with these really extreme environmental damage, uh, you know, impacts to the environment down in, um, Latin America due to illegal mining and no joke, you know, I'm blazing through this piece and I have all my research in front of me and I've got this stack of DVDs. I'm, I'm more interested in, in kind of putting together and it, you know, it, it dawned on me at that very moment, like, you know what I'm missing right now? I'm missing to reach over to, you know, my coffee table and grab a Christmas horror movie book that I would revisit uh, this time each year and kind of go through and pick out a watch list or catch up on some factoids that I might not have known about these films. And I start looking around, you know, Amazon real quick. Hey, is there anything out there that, that kind of tickles my fancy? And I didn't really see anything uh, that was readily available. I mean, there was a couple of self-published looking things, um, you know, people like review pieces and stuff, which which are always helpful, too. And, you know, that time of year, you always see the mega lists come out. Twenty five best, twelve best, five best Christmas are bunch of stuff that we're both really familiar with and, and comfortable with. And I was like, you know what? Really need something to really push the boundaries of 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 why we love this subgenre so much. And I got to thinking about it and I thought I very well might be able to, you know, tackle something like this. You know, the seedling of the idea was kind of born and I had always, you know, to me, one of the best horror movie books that I had owned up until that point was Adam Rockoff's treatment of the American slasher movie going to pieces. And it was published, you know, uh, at that point, like 18 years prior, or 15 years prior. And I remember it being such a wonderful read. You know, it was everything you wanted to talk about with the slasher. You know, it, it just has all the slasher pictures laid out in a chronological fashion, why they came out, some fun facts, it's a quick read. I was like, 
that would be such a great roadmap for a Christmas horror uh, book. And I, you know, slept on the idea and I woke up the next day and I, it was the strangest feeling. It was just like, and, and, and I think you can relate to this. It's like when you have an idea and you know, everything's starting to fall into place and you get that notion, like, you know what? I think I might be able to do this. Um, that's kind of how I felt the next day. And I knew that McFarlane had put out Adam's book. So I, I immediately knew like, okay, I, I at least have one publisher that I know that I would want to pitch this to. And I, you know, went about my business for the month and I started writing up a pitch for this idea and, you know, not dedicating too much time. Um, not that I did a shoddy job. I just, I was so focused those three weeks that I finished the query on New Year's Eve and I reviewed it for like the 10th time and thought, I'm totally satisfied with this. It reads well. It makes sense. I did the market kind of study real quick. There's really no, to me at that time, I didn't know that other folks were writing books at that very moment. Um, and I send it off. I figure, okay, I'll send it off. It's the holidays. I won't hear back anything um, for maybe 40 days or so. And I spent my New Year's Eve in traditional fashion, you know, celebrating, enjoying it. Yeah. And I woke up the next morning, New Year's Day, and there was an email at like 8 a.m. from the publishing uh, house indicating like, hey, this is fabulous. Can you send us a formal proposal? Which, of course, is a lot more work. Um, and I was quite surprised. And that's looking back on it. I think that moment in time really flicked the light switch for me. Like, OK, um, this is a huge opportunity. If I'm granted the opportunity to do this, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Um, I spent about 30 days on the proposal, which is not an easy project. Um 30 to 40 days. I, I think by the 40th day, I was ready to send it. I had edited it and let it sit a little bit. And I sent it off. And within a month, the acquisition meeting occurred and they agreed and they and I signed the contract. And I really started like, you know, honestly, that New Year's Day forward is really when I started. And I knew what I had to do. It was watching a lot of movies and I was going to be determined to talk to as many creators as possible uh, because me, for me, it was important to capture, you know, especially as we're edging into the 2020 era, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were able to memorialize a lot of the anecdotes and a lot of the reasons how and why these films got made. Um, because we look at it now, I mean, Silently Bloody Night just celebrated it, its 50th anniversary, right? So I knew I had a lot of work cut out and I just dived like headfirst and I didn't really come up for air for almost two years. I worked on that manuscript every single day, which as a writer, I think is really, really, really hard to do. Um, and I, you know, honestly, I'm not the most disciplined of individuals. Um, I, I, I had periods where I got burned out, but I knew I had to keep working through the manuscript. Um, you know, it, it's, it can be daunting and very overwhelming. 
And I know your experience is writing scripts. You, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way when you come up with different obstacles or you just get to this feeling where it's like, I'm so far from being completed. I don't know if I can do this. I don't have it. If I have yeah. the energy or, or, or stamina. And then I think the saving grace for me was just how positive the exchanges were with so many filmmakers and actors that were just so gracious about sharing experiences. I think that helped, you know, lifted me up a little bit. Um, and looking back on it, you know, honestly, maybe the pandemic period, it was kind of therapeutic in a way. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Cause I think of like, for me as a filmmaker, like that was part of the reason I started this show, you know, is what you're talking about was, was I was spending so much time in development and in meetings on projects and the pandemic hit. And then it was just like sitting around writing, writing meetings over zoom. And I kind of really missed engagement with creative people and talking because I always loved, you know, that I, that I had gotten the opportunity in my career to, to, to become friends with people like George Romero or Stuart Gordon or whoever. And, you know, these kind of guys. And, and, and I was always bugging those guys about, you know, anecdotes about their films. I've always been, you know, that kind of, of guy. I, I want to hear all the stuff about how a person made their movie. And, you know, so it's like this podcast became fuel for me between projects. And when I was on projects, you know, doing this show and talking to people and, and hearing about people's careers and, you know, we've had some amazing people on the show and like, um, you know, you just get, you get sort of inspired by that and it helps you kind of keep going with other things that you're doing. Yeah. You know exactly what I mean. It, it, it's such a force multiplier. And, and I think what's great is it, it's such a communal effect. I, you know, it, it had, yeah. you know, as a writer, it had a, a, a tremendous impact on me and my abilities. And I can tell you, I had several individuals reach out after the fact and were like, Hey, you know, that really helped me get over this, this, hurdle during the pandemic to be able to talk about something that I find to be positive or I had a fond memory of that. Um, and it, you know, it was so great to see it go such a long way for all of us um, and manifested into something that's not only great for the horror community from a historical perspective, but, you know, for their legacies to be kind of recorded in a way. I, I mean, I just couldn't be happier. That, that was really my main aim was to kind of record some of these things um, that we otherwise might have missed as a community. Um, but what, you know, what is also great is, you know, this is one of a few Christmas horror, you know, you know, uh, books or attempts to kind of memorialize the beginning of, of the Christmas horror subgenre. And I'm sure 20 years from now, even 10 or five years from now, there'll be more works celebrating the subgenre and going forward. It's just a building block to kind of keep it going, which is really, really, I think, a great place to be in. Well, I think it's a testament to, to, the, to the way you've arranged the book, I guess would be the way to put it, that that you can read it. The Like, I read the book, like, for the show, sometimes I get sent people's material and you know, you have to, I have to consume it in a way that I wouldn't normally usually, usually I would, you know, read it over a period of time and I have to get it done in three days, you know, and it's like, oh my God, or, you know, and luckily like, because your book is long, I got it a long time ago before we were doing months ago. And it, it was funny because how it came on my radar was 
way back at like the beginning of the summer, knowing I'm a big Christmas horror fan, I was like, I, I when Christmas time comes, I want to do an episode, you know, not about any particular Christmas horror movie, but about the subgenre itself. And and I said to my producer, is are you know, let's see if we can find, you know, who are the kind of go to um scholars or or people we can consult with on this subject and so we start digging into it and, and it's like you said you there was like a few things some spatterings here and there critical essays stuff like that I was like but it, it amazed me I was like that I couldn't not readily at least find a book on that subject because to me Christmas horror isn't a minor subgenre it's a pretty well known subgenre i don't think of christmas horror as being as specific as even something like uh like a jalo film where i think right. like if you talk to your standard moviegoer and you go do you like christmas horror movies they're going to be what like gremlins or like krampus or that most people will know what that is right most people won't know what a jalo film is you know what i mean so and yet there are way more books on that than there are on Christmas horror. Um, I mean, there's books on some very, very, very specific <laughs> factions of the horror world. You know what I mean? Like there was some that I found. I was like, there's a book about this, but there isn't a book about Christmas horror. So we I think I found or, or read an article. It was on Bloody Disgusting or one of those sites that this book was going to be coming out. And my producer contacted your publisher, and, and and then I think I just reached out to you yep. through social yep. media. Just said I have an interest in this book, and you, yeah, that's what happened. And you gave me your publisher's info. That's right. Um, and I remember reading the book and being like, "You can read this cover to cover. It's not like a a book where it's like you look up, you know, the particular review you want to read." Or you know, a lot of those kinds of books I find like you would never read cover to cover, but this one you could. And I think it had a lot to do with just the way you chose to assemble the book and, and arrange it. What went into the decision making on sort of what films, you know, like I know obviously it had to be Christmas and had to be horror, but that can become kind of loose and kind of broad. Like how did you decide what that criteria was? Yeah. You know, that's a great point. And you know, one of the things that I tried to do was to ca like, I cast my net wide. Um, you, you know, for instance, um, in, in fact, it was a Canadian film that you and I had, had spoken about before is The Brain. Um, yeah. And it's like, OK, it's not very overtly Christmassy by any means, but it does take place at Christmas. Right. That, and, it's it, right. <laughs> you know, and it's like um, what I wanted to do, you know, I was kind of cautious about it was uh, but I did err on the side of being a little bit more um, liberal with my inclusion of 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 Christmas films. I, I did have a cut line. Like there were some really great um, winter themed horror, uh, yeah. but just never placed it, you know, at Christmas. At Christmas. So like the shining, for example, is like not the shining. I know the thing gets a lot of, um, you know, nods in, in that direction as well. Right. And um, uh, white reindeer from Finland, absolutely incredible film uh from the early 50s very very wintry has winter vampires and I mean, everything about it is just phenomenal um but no christmas and wait is the shining in your book uh i don't believe i i had covered the shining uh i was just thinking of there there is a christmas scene in the shining so technically if that if that fit the criteria yeah and you know like jaws I, uh, what is it jaws 3 i think is also this got some Christmas, you know, like an opener. Um, yeah. 
and, and there's some stuff that, you know, ultimately for me made it to the cutting room floor. Uh, and that was, you know, both a spacing issue, um, a timing the other issue. thing I think, though, is, Matthew, like, if you're doing The Shining, what the fuck are you going to say about The Shining at this point that hasn't been said already? Yeah, you know, right? like <laughs> to me, it was the same thing with, um, uh, you know, A Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, stuff that was so um, studied so well and, and kind yeah. of memorialized. I, I, I attempted to kind of steer away from uh, to a certain degree. But I, yeah. I, I also didn't want a book, right, or, or be a guy who writes a book where... All I'm doing is commenting or, or or referencing what I like and not others like, um, because who cares what I like, right? Um, there's some that I love. There's some that you know I, I really don't care for, um, but nobody really cares. Like nobody wants to, in, in my opinion. Well, they you're an expert. Want to read remember? That, you know? So people want to hear from the experts. <laughs> well, you know th- that is a good point, and and, and the one thing I. That are, like that I, do. put it to you this way, I would be more inclined to say to you, "Hey, you know, I I want to watch a Christmas horror movie I've never seen. I want it to be kind of like this and kind of like this. Give me a suggestion." That's you're more likely for me to lobby that at than one of my friends who loves like Dario Argento movies or something, right? Who right. Probably right. would probably just be like, "I don't know, man. Just watch um this Fulci movie like, or something." Like <laughs> I, I mean, like you said, there is a lot of. Well, not a lot of books, but you know, but there was some material available that were kind of just annotated reviews, um, like a guidebook, which, which of course have have value, right? Um, I just realized, by the way, it sounds like I'm like ragging on people who love European horror movies, and I'm not. I love them too, but but it's just it's the obvious go to for me of really intense horror fans. You know, like oh, I have some totally friends right. who are so intense about you know European horror filmmakers. That that's just- <laughs> But anyway, sorry, continue. Oh, no. <laughs> it just, I, I, like, I sound like an asshole. I'm just like, oh, Fulci fans. Like, <laughs> I love Lucio Fulci myself. So Yeah, um, no, and- I, I totally do, too. Um, <laughs> you, you know, like you said, you know, the, the, there was space that was occupied by, by some review books. And I wanted to, you know, give something a little bit different for, uh, you know, my book does have the filmography that can be used as a reference, um, you know, just looking, through, scanning through for new watches and stuff. Um, but the meat and bones, I, I really wanted to um, at least present these films, even if it's just like a snippet or a paragraph or two of, um, you know, some fun commentary about how they were made or some of the challenges made, you know, stuff that as a filmmaker or a film student or a film historian, you you know, would find really interesting. Um, But also like an individual who might be curious about Christmas horror um, to kind of be able to peruse or even, you know, a sociologist that's really into the cultural impact of Christmas. Um, You know, there's a little bit of analysis that kind of feeds into what they might be looking for as well. So, you know, it is difficult to write for multiple audiences. Um, but the good thing is, you know, you remain true to the material and it, it kind of does the work for you. And you're just kind of um, illuminating the path to walk down, basically. And um, that was really my main intent. But I wanted it to be something that a reader could enjoy. And like you said, read cover to cover, or if a particular element of the subgenre really is your favorite. Well, hey, you know, you're able to dive right into that chapter and be able to consume it on a one-off basis. Um, 
And I felt like the criteria for each of the chapters um, and the universe of films that we have to kind of analyze them uh, this way worked really well. Um, There were very few films where I felt didn't really bin properly with the chapter structure. Uh, maybe very few, like single digits out of the. I mean, you, you, you like got a bit into, um, some sci-fi films, even like Trancers is in there and stuff like that, which, um, I love Trancers. Oh my gosh. I love it too. Yeah. It's one of my all time favorites. Yeah. Trancers is, I'm a huge fan. But Trancers is again, straddling that line of sci-fi horror because the Trancers themselves are kind of zombies and there's all, you know, I, I, but I don't, I don't think. I don't think fans are the kind, I, at least to my mind, like with with your book, I, there there's such a sense of love of the subject matter that I think people will find that will shine through more more than they would be inclined to be like, well, that's not really a horror Christmas movie. Like, I think when you read a book, there's a, and I won't name names because I don't, I do, I, like I make a point of not doing this on my show. I. I will. I don't want to disparage anyone's work. It's really hard to make a movie or write a book, and it's really kind of just as much work to make a bad book or a bad movie right. as it is to make a good one. I mean, it's a shit ton of work no matter what. So I think your book did a really good job of, you know, because I won't specify, but there's some bad movies in it, and you're handling them as quite generous, I found. Like, you, 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 you found something to celebrate about the fact that, like, hey, this movie might not be you know, there will be blood, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but these people worked really hard on it. And, you know, for that, for the 15 days or five days they spent making this movie, this was a big deal to them. And they made this thing, they, they got it done. And that's kind of, there's a celebratory aspect to me of just getting a movie made and in the can right. to begin. Yeah. Um, so I think it's kind of, you know, there's books I've read where the subject matter is something I love. And then I'm reading the book and the author is continuously, ridiculing or dinging the subject matter and by the time i'm finished i'm like why the hell would you write a book about something that, that you're this uh crusty about <laughs> like, yeah no you, you, you know i read i remember reading a book about about um charles band you know the full moon the creator full moon right and and thinking it was going to be sort of a celebration of his body of work and it was very judgy and kind of you know it was well researched but i remember putting it down at the end and being like this person doesn't get charlie van like this isn't they didn't they didn't understand at least in, to my opinion i'm like why would you write a book about this person's body of work and then spend most of the book being like you know but it, it's not a good movie and it's a shitty movie and it, i'm like who's this for because the only yeah. person who's gonna read a book this size is a fan and they're not gonna enjoy sitting there reading 200 pages of you ripping on a subject they're passionate about that's a that's a just another fantastic point and and, and, it's, and it is disappointing to see and it yeah you know sadly occurs way more uh than I think we would like to see especially as fans especially as um you know students of history and stuff and you know doing a lot of the research at least for for this book and uh, you know, for instance, the second chapter, which deals with a lot of the uh, slasher films that have, you know, like a Christmas setting and stuff. A yeah. lot of that work, you know, is that in, well, a lot of the research and a lot of the primary uh, sources were written back in that period of time where almost everything published in the 70s and early 80s just completely eviscerated anything um about these films and and yeah. the people that enjoyed them 
And I read my fair share of, I, I mean, it was remarkable to see. It was like 10 books. Oh, and they Silent just, Night, Deadly Night in particular was a movie that like just got decimated by morality bullshit. Just like yeah. People. You know, it was, yeah. it's interesting. It's like an early iteration of cancel culture uh, in, yeah. in that period. And we know that those guys from Silent Night, Deadly Night were definitely outcast right away. Um, it impacted negatively almost all of their careers uh, yeah. for years and years and years. And, you know, a lot of the other films in that period, you know, people trying to come out and ride, you know, and, and nothing against it, you know, but a lot of emerging filmmakers at the time were latching on to heart. They might not have been horror fans by any means, but the market space was there where that was entry level, you know, access points. And well, you read a lot of that too, right? Of these guys who go out and they make some little slasher film and some of them work out and some of them don't. But it often always starts with so-and-so at a distribution company told me you could make a lot of money in horror, you know, with, with spending a, a very little. And so many guys in the 70s and 80s thought that and went out and made, you know, now some very iconic movies. But <laughs> but it's interesting that, you know, that, this, that you could be cynical about that, right? You could look at that and go, well, some of these movies that – People love Friday the 13th is a good example of it were made because a couple of guys who wanted to make movies were like, well, what's an easy sell? Uh, you know, which is which doesn't sound very passionate. But, um, you know, a, a movie like Silent Night, Deadly Night was a bit of a product of that. It was like, yeah. well, what would sell? You know what I mean? And and how do we do this? And when you look at the the background of how that movie got made, which is fairly workmanlike, you know, it's sort of a gun for hire director. Um, the if I'm not mistaken, you'll know <laughs> the writer. They kind of ditched a lot of his script and did went there a different direction, but kept the core idea, kind of a thing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They they so had that, completely reworked it. Yeah, so like that whole movie to me is like, it's kind of amazing that it's in my opinion, as good as it is, because usually movies aren't as good as that movie when they're made in that fashion. Um, I a hundred percent agree. It's always interesting. I think when we find these films um, that are made by non horror loving or non experienced horror uh, industry folks, and we end up with something so unique and interesting and beloved or a cult classic, um, because the director of Silent Night, Deadly Night had no interest in horror movies, hated horror movies. Yeah. Um, in fact, he did not even shoot the sequence um, in the house where Linnea Quigley gets thrown up on the antlers and the psycho Santa, you know, foe threatens the young child. And he was so appalled during that sequence. When he gives the little kid the box cutter? Yes. So in yeah. that sequence, uh, the producer wanted the child to be murdered with the box cutter. And the director literally left set. Um, oh, I, but I totally agree with him. That would have been a bad call. And, you know, everything else about the film, he was uncomfortable with the content, um, was not a fan, never made horror movies uh, for, for the most part. Again, is he still alive? No, sadly, he had passed uh, about 10 years back. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, like Silent Night, Bloody Night, which is now being revisited as a bona fide classic and almost a proto slasher. 
you know, again, the director had no interest in horror, was not a horror um, aficionado by any means, but he, he, what he created was one of the eeriest, you know, quasi house films of all time. And I think it's so bizarre that a company like vinegar syndrome or something hasn't put that movie out yet. You think of some of the weird ass movies that Severin and vinegar syndrome and some of these awesome companies have put out, but nobody's put out a good copy of that movie. It's so weird to me. No, that it's, it, it is, it is a tragedy um, because is the print lost or something like, do you know the reason why uh, it is? No. So fortunately the, the, the primary source material from what I understand is not lost. Uh, how, how, however, uh, it's, it's currently unaccounted for. It was formerly at the MGM vault. Uh, they claim they no longer have it. Uh, I, I personally, my own personal opinion I think that's a miscalculation. I think it is still there. Um, it's either just misplaced or the individuals, you know, looking for it weren't sure. Yeah, it's, where in, it was. it's in the mail room as a paperweight. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. almost certain those materials are safe. They were safe as of 2016. Um, there is a workable, you know, usable theatrical print floating around that's in um, unknown shape, but, but one does exist that, that we know of. Um, I, I think one of the things that complicates that film is its public domain situation. Um, it was not filed with co- uh, copyright office properly in the very beginning. Uh, Canon Pictures was kind of imploding at the time that, that it came out. And is, it, that, is Canon who put that up? Yeah, it was right at the end of, of their first implosion. And, you know, interestingly, it was... Um, a very young Lloyd Kaufman that, that helped get that film out. Ultimately um, he was a production sis, um, assistant on set. Why does that not surprise me? Lloyd is like <laughs> such yeah, a super so dynamic and, and great. And yeah. you know, they ended up giving him a uh, producer title at the end. Uh, Cause he had done so much work on the film and helped get it distributed. Uh, albeit briefly, but, one of the things that I think gives that film such a problem is all of the existing materials that anyone has ever seen has been this shoddy, low light, low quality print floating around all the DVDs. I, mean, I, think, I think when I went in to see it, I had to watch it on like YouTube and it was like this yeah. terrible VHS like rip. And it has that quality of like a lost movie at this point of like just right. I've never seen it look good. And and that's a it's a real shame because from what I have been told, um, you know, seeing it restored is quite a remarkable experience and was probably one of Ted Gershoni's best works um out of his career, uh, who had directed it. And was it shot in 35 or 16? You know, interestingly, it was actually shot on 35. Wow, um, really? Yeah, because, you know, that was my thought, too. You know, a lot of the versions I saw were so gritty and rough. Yeah. I just thought for sure. And it was an indie film uh, as well. I thought for sure it was 16. And to yeah. my surprise, they shot on 35 and almost all of the budget um, practically went toward um, film yeah, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Wow. I mean, it's one of those movies that, you know, I've seen it and, and I think it's, masterful but uh you know very few people have seen it and i think until it gets one of those lavish special edition kind of things it'll probably stay in kind of that purgatory because i don't think most want to people are pretty unforgiving now about what a movie looks like 
I, because you, you can take these movies and process the, the the shit out of them now and take out every speck of grain. I mean, you look at it now and they've kind of found a better science of for a while there, they were taking these, these great old horror movies and over restoring them, you know, bit of grain out of them. And I was like, I don't want to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre look like the, the version that Michael Bay made. I want to see the version Toby Hooper made that has all that grain and that's part of that experience you can kind of over you know i remember dean cundy telling me i think one of the early dvd restorations of halloween and he wasn't happy with it he was like it's all wrong they've over color corrected it and it's too it's too much in one direction that that isn't he said there's certain things we did in the color grading for a reason and they've gone and changed that now and i know since they went back and let him supervise it and get that right but like you know it's to me i i wonder if a movie like the one we're talking about is the kind of film where when it does become accessible if it will lose that mystique because now everybody can get it (laughs) it's a great point and it reminds me of um the dorm that drip blood right yeah early 80s and for the longest time now it's a quintessential slasher film and i won't reveal you know, the major plot twist that makes it so unique because it's definitely worth watching, but it had such a horrible reputation for decades, primarily because the print floating around that was available was so dark and you couldn't right. really see anything. It was just awful. And you look at a lot of the early reviews and even the later reviews going all the way out to like 2003, trashing the film. Now that it's restored, it's a whole new movie and it's finding a whole new fan base. They're recognizing the unique plot twist that makes it special. But when you look at the photography of it and Matthew Mungle's special effects, absolutely phenomenal. And I, you know what? I've never seen that movie. <laughs> well, well, it's almost good timing and very fortuitously because the I just I avoided that movie great. because when I heard the title, I was like, this is going to be like another TNA slasher film just of like, girls getting their tops to, like i remember watching um we'll get into this when we get into our naughty and nice list but but there's a a recent release that vinegar syndrome put out of a, of a particular christmas movie and i was just like Ugh, i'm so over this kind of movie it was just like ripping girls clothes off the whole time and oh right. stabbing yeah them. and i just like at a certain point i just i've never really responded to those kinds of movies uh i don't like I remember even in Silent Night Deadly Night when the mother when he tears her top off I at a young age I was like well that wasn't necessary like right. I, you know what I mean like it was it just never felt like it needed to and I still don't I it's still a moment in that movie that feels alien to me like it doesn't quite belong in that film but um I agree uh, it just it's sort of there's a little kid there watching and I it, that movie already pushes it enough that one moment it still to me feels like I bet you the director was like, I don't want to do this. And there was a, someone else going, yeah, but TNA, like it, it yep. feels forced. I don't know. There's, but, but uh, the dorm, the drip blood to me was one of those movies where I remember being like, oh, it's just going to be, you know, an ex- another sort of excuse for, and a, a friend of mine who's a huge fan was like, no, no, it's not. You have to give it a shot. It's not, it's not that kind of movie. It, I mean, it has that too, but it isn't just that. And I was like, okay, then maybe I'll, I'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's a fair shot. I, I think um, ultimately it it brings certain qualities to the table. Um, there, there's some smart characters in it. There's some strong female characters in it. 
um, very, very creative practical effects um, on, a, on a shoestring budget. And they got some really, really interesting gags that they did for it. But now we can finally see them. It is really the turning yeah. point. So that Blu-ray copy. Um, Who put that out? Oh, shoot. I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, but they did a phenomenal job because I can tell you I spent maybe 15 years with, with some really muddy prints of that film. And honestly, you know, my honest opinion was I did not like it. I did not like it because I let that skew my perception of what right. I was watching. And I'm telling you, that's how different of a movie it appears on Blu-ray, which I'm so happy. Synapse? What's that? Is it Synapse? Uh, I believe that is correct. Does it, does it look like that? That's the one. Yep. Okay. It takes place at Christmas time. Yep, it takes place in a a, a set of dormitories that are um, pretty much shut down over the Christmas break. Okay. And there's a couple students that stay behind to kind of finish up um, decommissioning the building before it's slated for demolition. And okay. uh, so it's got this like eerie abandoned campus kind of vibe. Not yeah. a whole lot of people around. Um, and they right. literally shot it. At AKA at not, not have to pay a lot of extras. <laughs> yeah. <yet. laughs> they shot it at yeah. UCLA over Christmas break. So, it, you know, what you see is actually authentically shot over Christmas, which is, which is kind of fun. We'll be back to the show in a moment. If you love what we're doing on Spill Your Guts, we could use your support helping to bring you more conversations with horror's icons, celebrities, creatives, and genre-defining artists. Please show your support by contributing whatever you can on our Patreon page. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash spill your guts. All one word. If memberships are your thing, be sure to subscribe to our channel for exclusive bonus content, contests, and giveaways. Also, please check us out on all the major social media channels for all things SYG. Thank you for listening, and now, let's get back to it. Well, let's kind of get into it here. I want I want to, for the for listeners, I want to give them some uh, some Christmas recommendations over the holidays from the Christmas horror expert himself and a guy that knows a little bit about Christmas horror movies. Um, that one's me. You're the first one. Um, so we're going to kind of go through and we're going to do our top five uh, naughty and nice lists for Christmas horror. Um, so how, how we're going to do this is... You say we're going to start with number five and we're going to start with our with our nice list. And you, you're going to tell me your number five and then I'll tell you my number five and we'll compare notes. OK, because we're I know we're going to have some redundancies here. So we might as well just cut, explain our different perspectives of why we chose the ones we chose. Yeah, sure. I bet you I bet you our list will be very similar, though. <laughs> um, What what what's your number five for on your nice list? Okay, so number five for me, um, and of course, this is kind of like a moment in time snapshot kind of thing. But, you know, I would say a Christmas horror story from 2015. That is my number five as well. It, you you know, to me, as well, it's it's an anthology film, right? Very well done. Great wraparound story. It's got George Booza as a as a Santa Claus uh, character has yeah. got a Krampus in, I mean, William Shatner, William Shatner shows up in it, at, you know, <laughs> as, as the guiding voice. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's all, you know, to me being American, looking upward at you guys, 
to me, it feels very Canadian in a very comfortable way. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of creativity jammed in there between Rob Archer, who plays to Krampus, who got He's his, great. you know, yeah. body fat index, uh, body mass index down to like four, four or three percent for that role. Um, yeah. It was just, most, you know, the most jacked Krampus there will ever be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how awesome is that? Right. <laughs> It's funny for me, the thing I watched that movie. Now I find myself every Christmas going back to that movie. It's found its way into the rotation. And I think for me, part of what it is, is that in it. And I think in almost every anthology movie, shy of a few, there's always one lesser piece. There's always one story that's, that's less, even in the really great ones, there's, you know I mean? You look at something like trilogy of chair of terror and everybody's like the doll, the, the fetish doll one is, you know, it's the, the standout, obviously you, know, you can go down the list of like the famous anthology movies and arguably almost all of them. There is a week's weaker story in the lot. I think Christmas horror story is pretty even across the board. Every one of the stories is fun and engaging in more or less the same way. It's really well, it's a really well-made movie yeah. on a small budget, you know, not a micro budget, but, but on a small budget, it's very, um, there's some really clever design work that's done. I just, it, it's a movie to me that the filmmakers set their sights high and they a- achieved what they attempted to do. And I yeah. think it's, it's about as much fun as you can have with a horror movie. Uh, it, there, there's not a nasty mean spirited bone in its body. It's just right. Right. Fun all the way through. Um, and then I think these are hard to pull off, you know, aren't they are, really hard yeah, to pull they, off. Are. they are. I th- and I think because of that, right. Because inevitably you're going to have that thing where people might really respond to one of the stories and not another. And, and then, so, you know, when they talk about it, there's going to be that segment that they're going, oh, but that's saying, it's like you think about creep show. Yeah. And everybody was, oh, I love the crate, you know, with Adrian Barbeau and, and Hal Holbrook. That's so great. And then the whole Leslie Nielsen part, though, that's not it. No, no, no. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> people always talk about anthologies like that. They, they pick the one they like the most and the one they like the least. And I think with Christmas Horror Story, I never describe it that way. I yeah. almost forget that it's an anthology and just think of it as one cohesive thing. And so, um, and I, I, I've recommended it to a lot of people and have I've had every single person come back to me like that was a blast. Thank you for recommending that. It's such a safe recommendation on that level. Yeah, it, it really. I think it has something for everybody, and 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 I think yeah. for the most part, it, you know, it, it's it's relatively family safe um, as well. And great effects, great performances, awesome. great direction, great writing. And 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 how many times do we have an anthology that its weak point is its wraparound? I. I I mean, probably fairly common. And and in this case, the wraparound is so powerful and so yeah. intricately connected. I find myself, you know, wa- like rewatching it each year and always finding something a little nuanced that I had missed or, or forgotten about. It, it, it yeah. just makes it a, just a ton of fun. Yeah. All right. Number four. Uh, for me, I, it, it's definitely Krampus from 2015. Michael Doherty's film. Yeah. Okay, tell me why you why you picked that one on on your list and why it's at number four. So, to me, it, it's got a lot of great qualities. Of um, it's hard to beat the creation of that family dynamic that they created. But even though 
you know, the lead in the film and the threat in the film is Krampus and his evil minions. You get so much great character depth. Um, and it's, it's so relatable and there's, there's humor to it. That reminds me of what, uh, Bob Clark's sense of humor was, and, you know, all stuff that's kind of familiar in the Christmas horror realm. Um, yeah. but, but, but it's a modern film, right? And I think that was hard to pull off or would be hard to pull off, but the effects are great. And that rendition of Krampus is so iconic. Um, especially compared to all the treatments that Krampus has gotten. Uh, that one was incredibly creative um, and a lot of fun. And it's got some pivots in, in, in the plot. It's got a great ending to it. Um, and again, I, I think it's a safe bet to watch in a group setting uh, or in mixed company. And yeah, you know, a lot of right? people enjoy it. It's like, if I'm, it's PG, isn't it? I right? believe it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, because so my choice for number four, which I think is Krampus owes a fair bit to, is Gremlins. Yeah, um, and and I think Gremlins is is um, a quintessential kind of family scary Christmas movie. I used to watch it with my family, and my parents were comfortable watching that movie with us as we were kids. And like you know, I'm but to me, it kind of Gremlins is like it's almost. If it's not in your top five, I'm almost like, do you really like Christmas horror movies? If you don't like Gremlins, like, um, because it, it sort of has to be there. It, it, it was so, I think, impressionable to everything that came after in that subgenre. It made such an impression. Um, one, because creating that Rockwellian sort of it's a wonderful life Capra-esque yeah. town to set in was so well done. And Joe Dante is such a great filmmaker and he had Spielberg in his corner. And so, it, of course, it's a beautifully made movie. But it also, you know, if you don't if you didn't grow up in the 80s, people might have forgotten how fucking iconic those characters were. Gizmo was on everything. That's right. Like, you know, what I mean, that little bastard was like. Could have run for president. Um, yeah. And some might argue that that he should in this day. <laughs> um, but uh uh, you know, they, they were such great creatures and creations and Gizmo was a little guy you could root for. And, you know, I still have tremendous, if I see a likeness of, of Gizmo, I, it gives me a warm feeling. I have, he, he's a childhood character that, that I have that relationship to. Um, yeah. I, I literally just bought a Gizmo Christmas ornament, I think two days ago. I mean, it's you know, just, yeah, you just yeah, can't he's, help it. He's, it's just amazing. He's, He's such an like and and stripe and the bad the bad you know and then the rules and you know and every time I watch that movie and I've seen that movie a lot of times and it was fun to revisit with my husband because he had only seen it once and he and I watched it and it was so fun to see it through the eyes of someone who wasn't it wasn't so familiar to because it was it had had that magic still like the scene where he first gets Gizmo in the in the in the old man's shop has this mysticism and mystery to it and. And the dad, who's kind of this lovable sort of, you know, he's kind of like the dad from Christmas Story. He's sort of, he he's lovable, but he's sort of a, a bit of a doofus. And he's like every, there's, it's just yeah. such a well-structured movie. And, and, uh, and I always said Zach Gilligan is great in it. I mean, it's a really, it's a really strong leading performance because you like that guy. You want him to, you know, make it through. And, 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 uh, you know, I, so I think Gremlins to me was the, sort of the archetype for how to do it, you know, to have the scares, have the Christmas part that, 
And the Christmas thing of Gremlins to me isn't just a time of year. It's it's every fabric of that movie has something to do with the holiday season. It's not yes. just what takes place. It's part of the the DNA of the movie. And those to me are the best Christmas movies where, you know, it couldn't be set any other time of year. Right. Um, you know, you look at a movie like Halloween and it's like, would Halloween play out the same on any other night of the year? No, it wouldn't. So it it has to be on that day or this guy walking around in a mask doesn't work. Um, I think Gremlins kind of, you know, has to be at Christmas for that setup in that movie to work. Um, yeah, definitely right. So uh, for me, uh, though, I, it's tempting to put Gremlins higher on the list, actually. And I I struggled to put it at four even, but that but but it's it's number four. So what's your number three? Number three for me, and this really comes from uh, maybe the past year or maybe even longer, uh, really revisiting it. Um, and, and we had talked about it already, but Silent Night, Bloody Night, uh, for me is increasingly a far more important film in the Christmas horror subgenre than I had, I had probably previously recognized and maybe born out of the fact that I had watched it so many more times, uh, recently, um, for me, that, that is a quintessential watch. I, I don't think a lot of people have seen Silent Night, Blood and Night. Can you give kind of a little synopsis on it? Cause I, cause I think it's going to be unfamiliar to most of the people. Who've seen yeah, the no, it, that's a, a, a great point. And, and it really is a forgotten film, you know, all in intents and purposes. Um, and what, what makes it so fascinating is that they actually shot it in late 1970. Um, it, it did come out in 72, but it predates black Christmas. It predates Halloween, but it really is a proto slasher film in, in many ways. And it's um, a deep seated mystery of this kind of um, family estate, the, the story takes place in Massachusetts. They shot it in northern shores of Long Island, New York, during one of the coldest winters on record in that area. And a lot of that kind of just oozes out of the atmosphere of, of, of the film. Uh, but it's, it mainly takes place at this estate in this very troubled family, very wealthy family that had owned the estate. Um, and there are some voiceovers that kind of guide you through the timeline. Um, there is a 20 year gap in the story. It opens up in 1950 Christmas Eve and the estate owner, uh, you know, kind of exits this house on fire uh, and he kind of dies in this horrific accident. Um, so 20 years later, he had willed this, this estate to his only surviving family member, which was his grandson. His grandson at this point is an adult and is willing to get rid of it, uh, you know, get rid of the estate and the property and everything along with it. Uh, he, he comes into town um, over the Christmas period to sign the final paperwork and just sell it at a bargain, you know, basement price, a bargain price. And um, I think he's selling it for like $50,000 or something. And all of a sudden, everyone involved in the deal starts getting picked off one by one in a conventional stock and slash way that we're, of course, very you know familiar with now, like those tropes. But this is really one of those early iterations of seeing it. Um, so lots of influences from Hitchcock and some of the Italian films and, and arguably some pretty bloody, violent deaths occur, which were kind of uncommon for, you know, uh, 1970, at least. 
Um, there's some axe murders that occur and then, and, and some other random killings, but the whole time you're kind of scratching your head, like who's the killer? What's the motive? Um, which all of it of course is revealed in the end. And I'll tell you, there's some kind of shocking twists to the story that even in that period, I can't imagine that content being yeah, routine. That right? movie is like, uh, you know, you recommended it to me when you and I first started talking. And I, as I told you, I watched it on like YouTube because like, I couldn't find a decent. I don't think you told me it was it was obscure as it was. <laughs> so I was looking everywhere trying to find like a real copy of this thing. And I was like. I think Matt's fucking with me. This movie <laughs> um, so I remember, but I ended up watching it on YouTube and it, it has this haunting quality that, that uh, is a bit evasive. I can't quite put my finger on it. There's something chilly and just kind of, it makes me think more of the tone of Dickensian, you know, Christmas Carol, the, the eeriness of the night of Christmas Eve. Yeah. The idea of, of the ghosts of Christmas are all kind of, I think very strong in, 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 in Silent Night, Bloody Night. Um, it has that vibe for me, but I sure would love to see a decent transfer of it. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. That, you know, the, to me, that's the one thing that's kind of holding the momentum that this film has to offer back from like the wider community. Um, yeah. and I, and, and, and you're right. Um, a lot of people still haven't seen it yet. Uh, when it came out in 72, you know, all the way up through 77, it had these fits and starts where it, it was kind of infrequently shown theatrically. It didn't really have a lot of um, attention. Like how do you watch it? I believe the first time I saw it, I believe it was on cable, uh, like late night. Um, I do you have like, like a screener of it at this point now or something? Like if you want to watch it? Um, you know, uh, ar- arguably one of the best, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of ironic, right? One of the best versions is this poor quality version on, on YouTube. Uh, but there are two discs that are available. They're both DVD. Um, they both use the same primary materials, which were elements of a 35 millimeter print, not the whole thing. Um, yeah. Some of those copies look decent, but again, not fully restored by any means. Both copies, I think, are still available for like less than 15 bucks. I, I think I've seen them between eight and eleven dollars, brand new. Um, so they're you know, like those ones that you get from like an unknown distributor and like a bin or something. Probably. I think yeah. one of them. Uh, I might be wrong. I thought Code Red did a did um oh did they did a print um at this. You could point. see Code Red doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they did yeah. one five years back, and that one, you know, arguably has got some work done to it, which is great. It, it is better than the YouTube. Um, uh, version, but you know, you'll definitely see what 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 I think is so great about it is like the grittiness of it. Um, well, I think it's I think unlike a lot of the movies that you and I have on this list, that movie is actually scary. It's yeah. just, it, it gets under your skin. It's a creepy movie. Like I I I was so close to putting the movie inside the European film inside yeah, on my list. Right. right. It's, it's, I think it's absolutely a Christmas horror film. It's yep. it's the lighting is, is entirely Christmas lighting and it's a terrifying movie. But uh, um, the only reason I didn't include it was like, there's too many people that I've recommended to me that were not happy with me afterwards. So. <laughs> yeah. That movie just seems to really upset people. I don't, I, you know, so that's my, I guess we, I can wholeheartedly recommend inside L'Interrier, uh, I believe is the French original that's name great. for it. 
if you want to see it, a, a movie that'll f- fucking stress you out and creep you out, said that's a Christmas horror film. That's a safe bet. And um, but most Christmas movies aren't actually that scary. If you look at at most of you know going through your book, I was noticing how many of them have a camp value, or they're little creatures, or they're not. A lot of them are straight ahead, or they're like you know kind of fun slasher movies. But there's not a lot of straight ahead horror pictures and. I think Silent Night, Bloody Night is a straight ahead, scary horror film. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that the performances themselves are also eerie in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it was such an eclectic mix of actors, yet they still pulled off such the, you know, such a not not a bizarre performance, but everything was firing on the same spooky cylinder that there's really no one to root for per se. You don't really know who you can trust. And as the film on, you know, unravels the story, you know, there's some really dark tormented souls that were kind of attached to each other through the storyline, which um, I think is really impactful e- even after 50 years. Yeah. Well, let's hope that, you know, somebody out there listening, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, somebody like let's, you know, somebody get that one out there because I think you're right. I think people would love the movie. And and I think it's so odd when we have some beautiful there's 4K versions of movies now that I'm like, who the fuck was asking for a 4K version <laughs> of this movie? Um, so, you know, I, I think it, a movie like Silent Night, Bloody Night uh, definitely deserves at least a Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, my number three is Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, uh, I watched the movie again last night uh, just because I knew we were going to talk about it. And I've seen it so many times. I didn't have to. I just wanted to. Just to <laughs> my head. Um, you know, one of the things I noticed more and more watching that movie, I'm blanking on it. Who's the lead actor who plays Billy? Robert Brian Wilson. He's so good in that movie. Yeah. It's such a good performance. He Because... That character is so tough because in the beginning you have to, he, there's a vulnerability to him and you have to kind of feel for him. And, and it, as far as movie villains go, I think w- one of the great things about Silent Night, Deadly Night is that it is a sympathetic villain that, yeah. that you know, he becomes what he becomes because he is made that way. Um, so many horrible things happen to this little boy that he becomes this. I mean, if you, look at that movie if a certain series of events if anyone has superseded it at some point that kid probably wouldn't go the way he did like you look at the nun that's that's um kindly to him i don't remember the character's name do you not off the top of my head i should but i don't because i just watched it last night but anyway (laughs) it's just like through the whole movie i'm like she she's she's trying but not trying hard enough i'm like do something stop letting her beat him like stop like you know, she's like she knows it's wrong, but I think that's even more interesting because it, it, to me, I think Silent Night, Night is ultimately a story about child abuse. And right. I think it's ultimately a story about trauma and PTSD and the effects of PTSD when when left unattended to. Because to me, if that woman um, had stepped up and said, I can't I'm not going to let you do this to this kid anymore. You're you're harming this child that story doesn't go the way it does. And and so there's culpability with all these grown-ups around this little boy who becomes a young man who becomes a psychopath that all along the way you're going, if anyone would have put down their shame and their pride or whatever it is to help this kid, he wouldn't, he doesn't become 
what he becomes. And for that reason, I think Silent Night, Daily Night is underrated. I think, yeah. you know, a lot of people love it, but I think they love it for, you know, Naked and Linnea Quigley getting impaled on deer antlers. I don't right. think they maybe have thought through what a kind of what I think is a much more deep film than than it might seem on the surface. Um, and and for me, you know, the the kind of, um, the, 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 you know, seeing it at a young age, I remember one of the first thing I noticed was having a, a horror movie with a with a, an antagonist who was also kind of the protagonist. Yeah. It's sort of this weird kind of thing where I'm like, wait a minute, the bad guy is the character I'm the most interested in here. Like when I watch Halloween or Freddy or Jason, like I love those bad guys, but I'm always cheering for the final girl. In this movie, there's no final girl to cheer for. It's just him. We're just, he's our character. And, uh, and I remember also like, you know, being a gay person, noticing that he was a very attractive guy too, which didn't hurt. So, um, for once I was like, yes, a movie with an attractive young man as the lead. And it isn't just the girls tops coming off. And all right, this stuff. right. Well, it's cause like, you know, you, you, there's an unfair <laughs> assignment of these kinds of films. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but, but I think the movie has all this great stuff. Like I love the, the actress who plays the, the mother superior character is fantastic. It's a great yeah. supporting performance. She's really great. Um, I don't recall her name. She's no longer with us. I know that, but she's incredible. Um, I think that performance is great too, because that woman, you know, in that role, that what's great about that character is it would have been so easy to play her as just the evil sort of nurse ratchet character. But that actor really plays that woman as though she believes she's trying to help that kid, even though she's totally misguided and wrong. She plays it with the, with real depth. And so I think Silent Night, Daylight, as much fun as it is, what I sort of uh, find about that movie that that I really respect about it is that um, that I think it, it it's about a lot more than what's on the surface, and I That's think right. uh, and I think that for me that gives it the longevity that it, that it has. Um, what's your number two? So my number two is actually Silent Night, Deadly Night, and I I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I think. I think there's so many kind of mischaracterizations of, of the film. A lot of it's born out of its, you know, the infamous uh, emergence of it, you know, in late 1984 and everything that came with it. Um, but even, you know, speaking with the screenwriter and kind of his thoughts on uh, being tasked with, with, with writing this story and a lot of it for him at the time. Um, and I must point out that like his final draft was pretty much what they shot minus maybe half a page. I mean, what, what he had finished, they shot the entire thing. And for him, he, um, he really felt like he balanced out the humor, albeit very dark humor with some of the more psychological aspects of the story. Um, and of course what the, you know, he was not present, um, on set or anything. And, um, as we talked about, the direction of that film was a lot different than I think anyone had anticipated. The input from the producer, Ira Barmack, was not really um, welcomed by really anyone to do with the production. And, he was kind of an asshole, wasn't he? Yes, totally. totally <laughs> right. um, in fact, I haven't met anyone involved with the project that really had anything pleasant to say about him, unfortunately. Right. Um, he was just really like a tyrant on set. Uh, you know, 
just a quick side note, one of the reasons why we have a finite number of photos from Silent Night, Deadly Night is because the producer at the end of each day, he would t- literally confiscate the film canisters from the still photographer who was the son of the director. So, you know, a local Utah. Yeah. And I read about that in your book. That's so crazy. You know, <laughs> as historians, we kind of lost, you know, all of those great candid behind the scenes images. Yeah. Yeah, because of the you know ego of this maniacal producer that that, that no one could really work well with, um, but you know get back to what Michael Hickey, the screenwriter, had had kind of relayed was, um, you know he he really felt that the dark humor parts that he had written them in such a way that they would be a, you know apparent and kind of enjoyed. And what's interesting is I. The dark humor is definitely there and the parts, you know, the famous parts that we all love with, you know, grandpa giving the warning, the young Billy. Um, I think a lot of that stuff was almost happy accidents. I don't think anyone on set really knew where Mike, like Michael was coming from per se. And they missed the beats of a lot of the stuff he had in there. Um, Some of it shines through, but I think a lot of it doesn't. And not that it makes it any less great of a film. Um, it just makes it even more unique and a little bit different. And there, there are a lot of great things about, it. you know, the, you know, Billy snapping um, and going on his murderous rampage. He, he doesn't hide behind a mask. In fact, no. mo- most of the time he pulls the Santa Claus beard and mustache down to his chin, yeah. to his whole face. Um, it's all those little nuances that really, um, kind of click and it really is this tragic story of this really traumatized abused young child and what he is shaped into and those catalysts that lead him on this murderous rampage i mean I'll, i i couldn't agree more is this there's so much depth to it um and it, it really gets written off as like a fun kind of campy well it's you know, like there's that whole um you know, the, the warm side of the door, that weird song that plays when they're in the toy shop or whatever. It's like, yeah. you know, like that part, like I remember my husband turned to me, he's like, what a weird song choice. And I was like, <laughs> you see that in a lot of 80s horror films, is these bizarre song choices. Because, um, but it, to me, like that's, you know, that's part of the fun of, of the, of the, the movie. But, but, you know, I, I, I just really hit me last night. And I think I knew this earlier, but it's just, I think that that, that lead character is so interesting and so compelling and so well portrayed and, um, and such a, an anomaly in, in the sub, in a, not just in the Christmas or in slasher films, there's yeah. not many characters like him. Um, and, and he has become sort of an iconic slasher character there, he, there is an action figure of him. There's a comic right. book of him. Like, you know what I mean? He's, he's a well-loved movie villain at this point so um and and though he was played by a different actor in the second film and an actor who was great in a different way um i think it's you know billy's place in uh in horror history is is i think kind of firmly firmly etched in now and it's kind of funny because you know i think of another famous horror movie that i'm sure both of us are about to lead into with a bad guy named billy (laughs) <laughs> what's your number two uh let's see i think i think we did my number two i 
I think. Oh, it, your Silent Night, Deadly Night was was number two. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. My number two is Black Christmas. Um, I struggled with this not being my number one. I like I I I really did. Okay, we're talking like I didn't sleep all night. No, I'm kidding. Not nothing that intense, but um, <laughs> but, but I think I think Black Christmas is like on that short list to me of movies that are nearly flawless. It's uh, it's so well made by Bob Clark who went on to make a, you know, Christmas story, which is another iconic Christmas movie that I also think is brilliant and love. Um, it's almost cliche to say you love Christmas story at this point, but it is a fucking great movie. So I'll just continue to say it. I don't care if it is a cliche. Um, but black Christmas to me is like, I mean, it's so everything works. Everything from the performances to the writing to Bob Clark's direction, sound design, locations, the way he uses classic Christmas carols, the choice of Christmas music that he uses, the villain that, you know, like what I was watching that movie last night, the the, the new 4K that Scream Factory put out. And, uh, and my husband and I were commenting on the fact that the things that Billy says to the women, to particularly, um, Oh, what's your name? Uh, the main actress, French actress, you know her name, Olivia de Yep. Are are still shocking now. Yeah, totally it's agree. The most shocking, and it has to be. It has yep. to be. It is gratuitous, and it isn't without purpose. Like it, it's so impactful because you have to understand how twisted this the mind is of this guy that they're dealing with, and then of course the twist at the end of the movie, and it's kind of a twist upon a twist upon a twist works so well and is so creepy and ominous. I mean, there's few horror films that to me leave me feeling as creeped out and kind of like, Oh my God. Then by the end of black Christmas, like where it's just like, because by the end of that movie, no, they're still not safe. And they're just, the illusion of safety is shattered in the credits roll. Like, um, and then you've got this great, I mean, the cast, John Saxon, Art Hindle, Vida Hussey, Kira DeLay, like everybody's fantastic in it. Of course, um, uh, what's her name from Superman? Margot Kidder. Scene stealer. She's awesome in it. Yeah. Uh, and again, a movie that's dealing with like some really tough stuff like abortion and, you know, alcoholism. And there's like family abuse again with the Billy character. Clearly there's yeah. some kind of family trauma involved with that character. He's talking about his sister and. You know, but I think the real brilliance of that film for me is that it is the first movie I can think of in, in terms of for me that took the the trappings of Christmas and and made them that ominous. Right. That writing and that those songs and that music just tweaked into a certain context and all of a sudden all of it was terrifying. And, and, and this house that they're stuck in with, with this, this garish lighting and his red lighting everywhere. And it, and all of a sudden, all of these things that, that I had always thought of as being a reminder of this festive time of year, all of a sudden were terrifying. And, and I saw black Christmas when I was fairly young and, and it scared the shit out of me. And yeah. like, uh, and we're talking about, you know, how a lot of Christmas horror films are fun and black Christmas is not one of those. It's, I think it's to me, it's this, it's absolutely the scariest of, of Christmas horror. Films. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think it's one of the greatest horror films period. So you're number one. 
Black Christmas. Well, with that said, you're absolutely correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for for all of those points, Black Christmas to me um, is still number one. It, It it's it's hard to beat. It it has so many qualities and elements to it that work. Um, and at you know for me at the heart of it, I think one of the most frightening things um, or the prospects of fear is, you know, being in your home, a place that is a sanctuary and ultimately where you're safest. Once that becomes, um invade it and you're in danger and you're in that like that's really really hard to rectify you know and not be frightened to death about that and everything in this film is you know not only plays into that but to me one of my greatest sensitivities is the look and feel of a location whether it's exterior interior and it's so but like those locations are just so phenomenal and unique and it exudes so many different qualities of the season and the feelings of these characters. Um, and there's so much depth to every single character in there. I've been to a lot of those locations, um, you know, and it's, it's crazy how, uh, you know, I remember going to where they shot, you remember the scene with where her father, um, the, the first girl who goes missing, Lynn Griffith's character, her father is staying in the street and he's, he's waiting for her and she's late and he's oh, really yeah. on the film and it's sort of a busy street scene. I remember I was standing there and I was like, Oh, this is, you know, where they filmed that scene. I was like, right. And you could tell it was, it's a very recognizable part of Toronto. And, and all I hear is this guy behind me goes, this is where they filmed that scene in black Christmas. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, you know, this black Christmas is a bigger movie, I guess, than I had anticipated. But, but um, it's awesome. But it, you know, it's, I I had a friend who said to me, well, was it an American friend who said, well, wasn't that movie shot in, in the UK? And I was like, no, it was shot in, in Toronto. They were like, no, 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 that movie, shot, I'm pretty sure that was shot in London. I was like, why do you think that? And they were like, well, look at the outside and like the churches and the architecture. I was like, well, that's what Toronto looks like because, very, because it was colonized by Brits. Like it's Toronto has a very British influence on it. He's like, mm, I have to check. I was like, I'm telling you this movie was shot in Canada. That's why the whole friggin' cast shot of like John Saxon are all Canadians. Like it's not a coincidence. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. It is a movie that has such a, there's such a, it's not just even that their, their, their home is invaded. It's that the evil is living in their home. Yeah. Right. They don't even know right. it. Right. I mean, that's so scary. That idea. I always thought movies about, you know, where it's like, oh, he's, you know, he's calling from upstairs or the thing lives in the walls or like, that's always so terrifying. I think to anybody, just that idea that your home, you could be cohabitating with some foreign entity and not even know it. That's such a scary idea. It, it really is. It gets me every time. And, and, you know, at the ending when you've got um, the short scene, when they're in the basement, um, I, I found particularly frightening. I mean, once you're subterranean in a basement like that with a threat right on, I mean, there, it, there's no way out. I mean, I, I grew up in a house with a similar setup with a basement like that. And I'll, I'll tell you, it freaked me out for years being down there thinking about it and <laughs> i remember distinctly the first time i viewed it and once that ending um you know with the slow uh pan out it's so overwhelming 
and so effective and like, oh my gosh, uh, the aha moment just slaps you right across the face. I think it's really hard to replicate something like that. And yeah. it, it just, it's so special. And no matter how many times you watch it, it's still effective. It's still awesome. Yeah. Um, I think it was so smart that Bob Clark, if this is true, I don't, I, I don't know if this is true, but I remember hearing that, that it, Bob Clark himself was never interested in doing a sequel because mm-hmm. he just thought, as soon as you start to explain who this guy is, as soon as we get into like why Billy does what he does or who he is, I feel like you're going to lose something about what makes that film work. And I think he's right. I think yeah. he's hundred percent right. Totally agree. Because any of the remakes they've done, one of them, which has nothing to do with this film, but but the other one, which which does and does try to sort of explain a lot, it it adds nothing to the concept. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, like I like the the second, the first remake, the mm-hmm. Glenn Morgan one. I think it was Glenn Morgan who did yep. that one, right? Uh, I think because it's because it's fun. It's a it's a fun ride, but but it doesn't hold a candle to the original. No, it it, it really doesn't. You know, the thing I found interesting about the about Glenn's version is it it the seedling came from his you know treatment of a novel that was written in the seventies called Bad Ronald, in which um, the antagonist is uh, he commits a crime he's a young man high school aged uh he commits a horrific crime kind of accidentally kind of not um and his mother decides to protect him rather than turn him into place and builds him in this little cubby hole to live in um behind the stairs and just tells the police after they come looking for him that he had kind of escaped and she hasn't seen him and she Mm. keeps him hidden for years in there until she dies and a new family eventually comes in and occupies the house, but he's still living under the stairs. It's a very haunting, eerie um, novel. And Glenn was really infatuated by it and did a treatment that he wanted to make. Um, well, you fast forward a little bit and you see some producers kicking around this idea of a Black Christmas reboot. Glenn kind of gets involved with the project and he brings along this um bad ronald script and what they do is they kind of cannibalize the bad ronald treatment with black christmas so you get a little bit of billy living in the walls um and this kind of merger i think some ideas work uh the execution uh at times works but like like you had noted you know once you're in the business of trying to explain the backstory of billy so overtly it, it it does kind of take the shine off the apple a little bit um, yeah. And- I mean, I think what, what part of what leaves you so haunted at the end of Black Christmas is that when you really stop and realize that by the end of the movie, you know just as much about this guy as you did at the beginning. Right. And that's, I mean, how many, that's, they don't do that in movies, right? You, you have to learn about a character for them to have, a character has to change or go on a journey or this guy, you know, the, what makes him so scary is that we don't know anything about him. Just, right. And that he's smarter than everybody else because he gets away with it. <laughs> like, um, you know, and spoiler he's alert. still inside the house. I know. It's just I mean, like, that yeah. part is so funny to me because I, I, yeah, I agree with him. My husband turns to me, he goes, the cops didn't check the fucking attic. And I was like, I know it's a bit like, <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> like there's still two people missing and they didn't look up one more floor <laughs> in the building where everyone else was killed. Like I was like, yeah, okay, I know. Like you, this is one of those like artistic liberties you grant a movie because it's <laughs> right, like, right. I, I mean, I, you watch that movie knowing that and, you, and it's like John Saxon, who is such a strong, you know, great imposing actor and when I think about him in that movie now, I'm like, actually, he's a shitty cop. Yeah. Right. Like, he does nothing for the whole movie. He just yeah. sits at his desk and kind of goes, hmm. <laughs> yeah, he does. Like, he's he's not effective at all, really. Um, and then in the end, he's like, well, looks like this is done. Walk it off. It's like, God, Saxon, come on. Like, um, you know, it's like... Uh, and it's funny too because I love the guy in Black Christmas who plays the the the, the desk clerk. Oh the yeah, show. he's so great that actor. A lot of Canadian films. He's been. He was. He's a, I don't know if he's still with us. I'm not sure. I think he might be, but um, he made a lot of Canadian movies, and so I've seen him. And he I, he did a he was in a Cronenberg movie, and oh. a lot of those actors I've seen in a lot of different things. But but I love that guy because. At the end of the movie, when Saxon says, you mustn't screw this up, call her and tell her whatever you're doing, stop it. Don't do anything. Just walk out the front door. And it's such a tense moment. And when he pleads with her, please just listen to me and go. He's so good there because that character has been so kind of silly throughout the movie. And in that moment, all of that silliness disappears and he's trying to save this girl's life by just getting her to follow that one direction. And it's such a great moment in the movie for that character. And and I love when movies do that, when you take a character that the movie kind of has made the butt of a a bunch of your jokes or whatever, and you give them a moment where they get to be someone else. Um, I thought that was kind of a great moment. That's a great moment. Yeah. My number one was Krampus. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um... I saw it in the theater when it came out and it just had every ingredient for me in spades that I love about this subgenre. First of all, I'm a huge full moon fan. I love the puppet master films and demonic toys and any little inanimate objects come to life type movies I've always loved. So this movie felt like a big budget full moon movie to me. Like yeah. it was just if Charlie Band got $30 million, you know what I mean? He'd make something like Krampus. Like it's and then it's got like a ridiculous i mean the, the cast is absurd <laughs> like, yeah, yeah yeah oscar nominated actors and stuff in a whole in a, in a in a in a movie like this doesn't usually happen tony collette is like meryl streep to me like and she's can do anything and uh, adam scott is brilliant and like i mean conchetta farrell every there's such a great it's such a the whole cast is brilliant and the little guy the the main actor is such a great kid actor yeah but which is um, hard to find yeah, totally. Because he doesn't do that annoying thing that happened in like the late nineties, early thousands, where every kid actor just acted like an adult, which always annoyed me. I was like, why are they talk? Kids don't talk like that, right? Uh, <laughs> but I just think it's like the movie has, um, all that eerie stuff of of that you can put into Christmas Eve of of when you take you know certain pieces from the Nutcracker and listen to them in isolation that they're very eerie and you know I think of. The Christmas, I mean, Christmas Carol is such an iconic Christmas story, and it's a ghost story, and and so to me, like Krampus has that eeriness, but then it also has the trickster quality of 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 Krampus, which is that he's sort of a Rumpelstiltskin figure. He's he's he kind of um, 
he he messes with his with his with his prey you know what i mean right he, he plays with them a little and he's um but i i also think weta's creature work is second to none i mean brilliant creature design so well done michael doherty i think i've, I've always thought he was an incredible director i think you know, Trick or Treat is a quintessential Halloween movie, and then he goes and makes a quintessential Christmas movie. Right. Is, I mean, how fantastic. Yeah, it's perfect, right? Um, and for me, Krampus was just like I, you know, because I love movies like Gremlins or whatever, it was it was all of that, but that that full moon quality of for me, it was always a dream of mine that Full Moon and Charlie Band would get to do a big budget movie. And it felt like Michael Doherty accomplished that for me. So so though I know most people would be like Krampus over Black Christmas, Kevin, you're fucking crazy. Like I understand the argument for that, and I know it's a very personal thing, but Krampus just cast a spell on me when I saw it, and 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 every year now it's my Christmas Eve go to movie. Oh, and, that's awesome! And I just I I think the design of that Krampus is easily the best Krampus design. Oh I mean, yeah, I mean that's just remarkable. That's yeah. going to be hard to beat for decades to come. In my yeah, I mean, I I really hope they do like a sequel or, to that movie, and I doubt they will, but it'd be great if they did. Um, yeah, and it, it's just a movie that you know when Screen Factory put out the 4K, I think it was last year. Um, I was so excited to have it on 4K, and because it's such a good looking movie, all Michael Doherty's work is. But uh, and the family dynamics of it work. It's like it feels like a, a John Hughes movie or something. Right. The, way that the family work relate to each other, and that you know when um. Uh, Techner and his family show up and they're the kind of, you know, like on a Christmas Christmas story, they're kind of like Randy Quaid's family. And there's, you know, there's just and there's these little nods to other Christmas movies that are well played. And and, and it when it when it turns into this kind of haunted, you know, snow ensconced, it's so it's really creepy in some of those scenes. It really so, is. Um, you know, it's just it, it, it's it's weird when you see a movie where you're like, wow, it's like someone made this movie just for me. And it's a very selfish way to look at it. And I know of course that's not the case, but, but it sure feels like it. When I watch Krampus, it's like every box I would check if I was going to make my own perfect idea of a Christmas horror movie is checked with that movie. That's awesome. Like I listen to the score when I write all the time and like, it's just so it just, it, yeah, it's uh uh, so it's it's so tough for me to choose between Krampus and Black Christmas because honestly they're kind of on the same level because they do a different thing for me. Black Christmas is my go-to really scary Christmas horror movie. Krampus is my go-to like fun Gremlins vibe Christmas. Right, movie. that's right. So they kind of ex but so if I if I could make them a tie, I would, but I didn't allow for ties on these lists. So. Um, <laughs> I thought also we might throw a few honorable mentions. Do you have do you have any a few honorable mentions you want to throw? You, you know, yeah, I, I got a couple that I'll throw out there, and 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 one of the things that ha has always stuck with me is uh, around like two thousand three or if it wasn't two thousand three, it was two thousand six. There was some commentary that the best of the Christmas horror subgenre has come and gone. Like we're over it. We're, we're moving on to uh, a new frontier. Christmas horror is not going to be a thing. And lo and behold, right. We have over the past 13, 14 years, so many great yeah. Christmas horror films. Yeah. Krampus being yeah. among them. Um, but one of the newer ones that really sticks out for me, that is a, really enjoyable, but again, has a lot of depth to it as you examine it is uh, better watch out, which originally was called yeah. safe neighborhood. And it, it debuted during the Me Too movement. 
and a lot of those scandals that were being brought to the media. And within that context, you know, the story kind of, in a way, really takes um, a hard look at misogyny and, you know, predatory males um, in three different generations. In, an, in, in a way that is so much smarter yep. than another film that's going to be on a different place on this list for me. I mean, absolutely right. I mean, this is really clever. It's subtle, but um, yeah, it's still powerful. Isn't the guy from um, Stranger Things in that movie? Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, that's right. Dacker um, Montgomery. Yep. If I'm not... Which is yeah, awesome. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, and Patrick totally. Warburton, uh, you know, play, you know yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. yeah, just great, great, great stuff. Yeah. And, and it, that movie, particularly when I think of it, I think of how handsomely made that movie is. It's a yeah. really good looking movie. And what I think is great about this, right? Because when we talk about Krampus and we talk about uh, Better Watch Out, you know, you have two films that are set. Um, in respective locations where it's snowing and stuff, uh, you know, Krampus shot on a stage in New Zealand. Better watch out was shot on a stage in Australia, but damn, did they do a phenomenal, phenomenal job of making it look like Americana, uh, you know, yeah, just like totally. Joe Dante did, right. On the script sort of idea yep. of America, North America, even cause it, it didn't feel to me like it couldn't be set in where I grew up. So, right, you know. right, right. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that goes a really, really long way. Um, the budget for Better Watch Out was hovering around like three million, give or take. And what they were able to pull off through clever story writing and that phenomenal set design, um, like they put the, you know, they put their money where it maximized the value, in, in my opinion. And if you're going to take a bold move and shoot something that takes place in a certain location for a certain reason, and you have to shoot it elsewhere, you gotta make it look convincing and authentic, yeah, or yeah. at least for me, you lose me. I, it irritates me. And yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. give me a picture without a sink, I'll, I'll kind of forgive you. But if you're telling me that the story takes place in Texas and you're shooting it in Bulgaria, I'm gonna know. I'm gonna know. Yeah, um, yeah. But those, um, <laughs> Those were really great. Um, there's just a whole host of stuff that came. I mean, even the past few years, um, I thought the December anthology film, which is like a cinematic advent calendar, what, what right. was really creative. Um, rare exports, I adore. I think rare exports. Rare is. exports is another one um, that yeah. is just it almost made it in my top five. It yeah. would be in my top. It would be in my top 10 for sure. Me too. I, 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 I was shuffling it around my top five. It, it, it's a phenomenal piece and it, yeah. it adds so much to the Christmas folklore, you know, legends from both North America and Northern Europe and kind of combines them. In and really it's fun so ways. well shot. It looks like a huge budget movie. Like it's oh, so it does. great. It, it, I mean, you those know, guys are great. wickedly talented. Um, yeah. And they would tell you that they struggled technically because you, you know, one of the contracts they had where they shot at, it was on the border of Finland and Norway by contract. They had to use some Norwegian crew and most of the Norwegian crew were not used to shooting out in the middle of rural, you know, northern isolated spots that snowed all the time. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of mishaps with frozen blood buckets and all sorts of things. Yeah. But even with that, it's it. 
and you'd never know. I mean, it just looks no. beautiful through. It looks through. like a big budget movie. It, it does. It just looks like a, you know, it's crazy. And it, it's, I remember, you know, I was one of the people who saw the short that was being circulated before the feature came out. Yeah. And, you know, I remember seeing that short and being like, oh, wow, this is great. Like, and when then I found they were making a feature, I was like, I'm so in. And it, I remember I saw it at a screening in Los Angeles. I was living there at the time and um, it was a packed house and everybody loved it. And I was like, see, this is great. Like, this is, you know, I hope this becomes a new Christmas classic. And I think it has. I think, yeah. I think maybe not on the level of something like Gremlins or something, but I think rare exports has definitely found an audience i hope it continues to grow though because it's a it's a really spectacular film another one that i would choose would be a uh, saint have you ever seen oh, that oh one? yeah yeah it's a great one i'm asking that but yeah i know you have yeah i thought that was great um really creepy uh again really slickly made uh kind of under scene though very few people have seen it when i ask people about it almost nobody has seen it yeah it, it's kind of a sleeper but it, you know in terms yeah. of um, interesting Psycho Santa films. And, and, and again, something that taps into Europe's um, pretty vast, you know, well of Christmas folklore. I, I I thought they teased out some really interesting things and it, it's got a little bit of like a police drama quality to it. Yeah. That I think yeah. strengthens it, you know, to a degree. And, and the, main, the main cop is actually an interesting cop character because yeah. so often... You know, the main cop character is kind of this. He's he's kind of fun. He's kind of interesting. I I was like, if this was shot in the States, I can feel like Tom Atkins playing this part or something. Um, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, And I, for me, the big honorable mention that I struggled with not putting in my top five was Christmas Evil. But we kind of talked about Christmas. Evil. Yeah, I 100 percent agree with you. I, you know, for me, uh, Gremlins and Christmas Evil are, are, are definitely worthy additions to it. It's just hard to, to, to narrow down to a list of five, but, but you're absolutely well, right. You know, Christmas evil for me is almost tough to call a horror movie. Almost. I agree as well. Yep. Because it's, it, it, it's sensibilities are not horror. It's sensibilities are far more in the, in the psychological thriller world than they are in horror. There's no jump scares. There's right. very little violence. What violence there is, isn't shot for shock value. Um, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's a character piece, yep. and it, it, a brilliant one. And, uh, um, you know, I'm, John Waters is a huge fan of, of the film. Oh, he is. Um, it, you're yeah. absolutely right. You know, like when the director is asked or God forbid someone calls it a slasher film, you can always tell who doesn't have a background with the film. Cause they just equate it to a slasher film. Uh, the director, Lewis Jackson, <laughs> just goes bonkers about it. He, he, he really, wants to showcase his film as almost a like an anti-slasher anti-horror yeah. picture um and he's right you know and 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 your points are definitely solid and there's not a whole lot of films out there that take um such a remarkable glimpse at somebody descending into madness yeah. um through the christmas season with all the christmas icons and it's it's a phenomenal kind of heart-wrenching tragic tale um that, that ending that ending oh man oh my gosh the first I, time I saw the ending of that movie i was like oh my god yeah. like i can't believe what it's a ballsy <laughs> ballsy ending like yes we don't see know. them like that anymore you know no my god i was like they would never let them do that in a movie. <laughs> nope. <laughs> in the, i don't even think many indies would have the balls to do that no anymore. i i i i couldn't agree more with you and I can't imagine that movie without that ending. Oh my god! No, like, it's I, I, just it's yeah. so 
it's so unique and it's so yeah. memorable and, and, and it warrants, you know, yearly rewatches for sure. Totally. Um, all right, let's, let's, let's get the naughty list here. What, what you know, and I kept, I kept mine smaller cause you know, we talked, I don't like to rag on movies, but, yeah. but I thought, you know, there's a couple Christmas horror movies that deserve to be on the naughty list. And so, so we're, we're, let's do two. So give me your, your second choice. I, you know, I, I watched as many Christmas horror films as I could between that uh, time range, 1972, to 2020. There's a lot of them. Um, there's over 225 or give or take in the book. I watched more than that. And not a lot of things bothered me. Um, you know, there was a lot of low budget indie projects not you know a couple of them were shot for five hundred dollars um but you know give or take you could find some redeeming qualities in there there's a couple that really bothered me though um and one of them was uh the silent night bloody night either the remake or the direct sequel there one was a uk production the other one was shot in omaha Nebraska. Now both have nothing to do with anyone from the original. That's film, correct. Right? They just uh, they were yeah. made because of um, public domain issues with the first ones. They could kind of have yeah, free leeway right. with making them. It's like Night of the Living Dead, where people can make sequels and shit to that because it. Like, yeah, it so we yeah. see like there is a straight remake of sorts. That's the UK version. It's just dull and just unnecessary. Uh, but there's a an American version that's kind of a sequel of sorts and shot very quickly in Omaha. And I, I just, I found myself, um, I almost felt insulted watching it because it was so quickly slapped together and kind of a feel like I felt like, Slap-ish yeah. I didn't kinda, feel like yeah. there was any respect to the audience. Now I, I'm not saying that the filmmakers had that intention, but it's like, I know it was shot and put together in less than seven days, uh, which is, of course, impossible to do. Very difficult. Um, but the end product was just it is what it is. I didn't it wasn't for me. I, it, it I just didn't like a single thing about it. And um, is it safe to say it sucks? Just say it, Matt. You say it, 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 sucks. it sucks. It sucks. And I'm sorry to those guys that made that. But I just um, I really did not like that one. <laughs> Sometimes it's just okay to come out and say it. Um, uh, for me, it's um, Don't Open Till okay. Christmas, which I think is an incoherent mess of yeah. misogyny and and just, uh, I don't like, I think it's it's just uh, like Vinegar Syndrome, who is a company I adore, recently put it out. And um, I had a feeling just from the cover, which was a woman with her top being ripped open, that it wasn't going to be my thing. But uh, then it's also like I, I, from my understanding, uh, you know, there was all kinds of issues with the production of the movie, and I think yeah. it shows uh, it's a total patchwork yep. of a movie without any real semblance of logic or or through line. Um, I just I think people sometimes confuse uh, because they saw something on a video store shelf or heard something about something when they were kids with that they like it, and then they they go, oh yeah, yeah, that thing, that that was awesome, and then they see it now, they go, oh yeah, that was great, and I was. And I had memories of that I had seen that movie or seen the poster and then I, and then I liked it. Or, and then when I watched it, I was like, this is shit. Uh, this is just misogynistic, badly yep. done. A uh, lot of just, um, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's an uncomfortable movie for me and not in the way that 
it's uncomfortable because it's challenging me or because it's it has something to say. It was uncomfortable because I feel like I don't have a problem with titillation in movies or nudity or sexuality in films. It's fine. I'm not crazy though about exploitation films and it felt very exploitive to me and yucky yeah. and um and I don't particularly have any fun associating Christmas with those things. Yeah, the, the um, totally fair points. I, you know, I recently and ironically I I saw a a 35 millimeter print of it of cheese a couple of days ago. And honestly, it was the best the film's ever looked. It's it's definitely not a great film by any means. And I'll tell you, I've got to go back and reevaluate. I could have sworn I was seeing content in this print I had never seen before. And it, it could just be faulty memory on my part, but. Was it the vinegar syndrome print? I don't, or? I don't know per se, but I will tell you that print was very clean that I saw. So it, it's probably the new print because their, their stuff, I think, had some stuff restored to it. And because like there's a. a I don't know what it would be like, but apparently there's an even more kind of bastardized version of it that was on VHS than this. It must've been completely incoherent because I think this is a mess, but, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's one of those movies where I'm like a lot of love and care went into restoring it. Um, I just think there's other movies that, <laughs> yeah. I would ever see that yeah, you know, it's not a well respected. It's not a beloved Christmas horror film. Um, it's de- yeah, I, I I agree. The the discomfort levels ratcheted up. The sleaziness of it is ratcheted up. Well, and I just think like it always pissed me off as a young gay person how many movies were exploitive around women or whatever, and like that that like there's such a fan base in the horror community for those kinds of movies. But then like I you know a a movie will come out that has like a a hunky male cast and everybody goes, Oh my God, it's so homoerotic. It's so cheesy. Like, like something like cheap Jeepers uh-huh. creepers, you know, when, when that film came out, everyone's Oh, it's so cheesy. It's so homoerotic. I'm like, wait a minute. That same quality when it's lesbian vampires is celebrated, but now because it's homoerotic, you you're making fun of it. Like it's, I always thought there was a bit of a, the horror, the kind of hardcore horror crowd can be a right. bit like that. I, I, I call that homophobia, <laughs> but that can be tucked into that audience a bit. And you especially see it in the seventies and eighties slasher films that are, that are pr- often a lot of them are pretty bad for the misogyny, right. you know, just women's tops being torn off and they're being raped and murdered. And for what, like, there's nothing, the filmmakers didn't have anything to say. It's just titillation. It's just exploitation. Um, putting that with Christmas for me. Right. Uh-uh. Right. No, thanks. Um, and I'm going to bet you that our number one is the same. Uh, the Blumhouse remake of Black Christmas. I, I, I hate you that. know, for me, I was, um, you know, I tracked the iteration of, of the prize. It was, it was a pretty quick one. It was all within a, a, a single year's time. They, they got to uh, working on it early 2019. And it was released just before Christmas. I think it was the 19th, um, give or take, that they released it. So very speedy production. And again, they shot it over, I, I believe it was New Zealand, with little care to the look or aesthetics, lots of fake snow. Um, and and just this wretched tale, you know, sloppily written, uh, sloppily construed. Um, there was just, to me, nothing redeeming about it. There, it full- Carrie always. 
the only thing about yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. Um, but, you know, you take this opposite spin of, um, you know, either too on the nose with social commentary or, you know, so convoluted with some of the messages and things. You know, my problem with it was, too, was like, I was, it was so unlike Jason Blum, who's such a savvy businessman and such a savvy producer to be so sloppy with a beloved franchise the way he was with that film. Um, that movie had no reason to be called Black Christmas. It has nothing to do with anything to, that is about, that is black, the original Black Christmas. It's, it doesn't feel inspired by it. It doesn't like, you, you could say other than it said it like a dormitory and like in that way, then it's, a hundred other yep. movies as well. So it doesn't, there's nothing about it that, that to me meant it should carry the name black Christmas. But then on top of that, um, I think it's one of those movies that thought it could get away with being as shitty as it is because of what it's right. saying. And I agree with what it's saying. A hundred percent. Yes. Chauvinism is bad. Yes. Uh, you know, toxic masculinity is bad, but there are other films like, um, what was the one you talked about earlier uh, with the with the little kid that um, Montgomery's in it? Was the name of that one? Better watch out. Better watch. That's a much yep. better movie about that subject because to me, Black Christmas was like getting walloped with a phone book over the head for ninety minutes of you know with the same message. Um, you know, it was just, and it was it wasn't any fun, and I didn't care about anyone in it, and I just it was one of those movies that by the end of it, I was like, oh god. Thank God it's fucking over. Like, and I'm pretty yeah. forgiving with movies. <laughs> and that movie really kind of like, I just had a hard time, you know, and I'm kind of a, you know, I love that, that movies have become, especially horror has take is kind of more, wears its feminist crown with great pride because horror, I think more than almost any of the genre did step into the, to that role early on with strong female characters and, you know, female heroes like Laurie Strode and character. Like, I, I think horror has a, a really can wave its, its pride flag, both in terms of, of strong female characters and, and, and gay characters, uh, and be proud of that. But, but here is a movie that I thought just, you know, the message is fine. The, the execution is incompetent. Um, yeah. And, you know, and who knows? Maybe it so, was the timeline that. You know, but but you're right. I mean, the, yeah. it begs the question: Would Blumhouse still have released it had it been called something other than Black Christmas? I think the answer is no. Myself, I don't think it was just complete enough, um, fleshed out enough, or cooked enough. Well, you know what it feels like to me, Matt, is like it's like they had a script yeah. of something else sitting around, and Jason Blum had the rights to Black Christmas and went. Yeah, there, there's definitely that kind of yeah. uh, puzzle piece feel to it. Um, yeah, it's like some of those Hellraiser sequels where you're like, well, they just put fucking Pinhead in <laughs> yeah, some other right, shit. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it just I've seen it uh, once. That's I, I agree. I I don't think I've met more than two people um, so far that have had positive things to say about it. Uh, which I, which is kind of fair. I, I, I mean, it was just a misfire. Everything about it was kind of off. Yeah, and it's like I don't mean to, I ne like we were talking about, like I never want to shit on a filmmaker or anything. And the people who made the film, like I, you know, maybe the, there's a version of this movie that isn't mm -hmm. what we saw, or there's more 
there's a story behind this. But for whatever it is, the version of this movie that I saw took a movie that I love and mangled its legacy a little bit. It doesn't really, because of course it doesn't touch Bob Clark's film. But how dare they put the name? Black yeah, I, I find it to be such a weird choice. I, I remember seeing an opening day and there was very few people in the theater and it was a mixed crowd. And I can tell you when the when the film was over and the credits were rolling, there was this strange like collective sigh. And. No, it was actually a collective noise of everyone waking up. <laughs> And I just couldn't believe oh, it. It's over? You know, oh, okay. Let, I was so home. cautious not to read yeah. too much about it before. I wanted to just completely, uh, and I, I was actually looking I'll forward you, to it. You know? know? Yeah. It it the one positive effect it had was it made me go back yes. to Glenn Morgan's film and be like, actually, this one's pretty fun. Yeah. It made that one. I it made me give that one another go, and then I was like, actually, you know what? This one's a good time. But this one, this one's. The one that has no right to be the That's the biggest, <laughs> I think, outcome of the 29th, uh, 2019 version is it has directed so much more attention to Glenn Morgan's version in a positive way. Yeah. Because for how many years yeah. was he raked over the coals as putting that out and all the purists were like, this was terrible. But now we have a 2019 yeah. version and all of a sudden Glenn Morgan's version warrants a revisit and, and some celebration. Uh, yeah, now it's like fucking Citizen Kane. <laughs> I, there's few films, I, 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 honestly, that I really despise, but I absolutely despise almost everything about the 2019. That's the thing is, I wish it was right. a good right. movie. Because there's a lot about it. What, it. what it wants to be, the movie it wants to be, I like the idea yep. of. If that totally, makes sense. totally. It's just the problem is the movie that it is, is no fun. That, that, that is the tragic you know, aspect of, of that release. You know, that, that just is another shitty aspect of, of that whole project, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. you know, by by um, contrast, in terms of female filmmakers um, and kind of uh, engaging these very poignant social themes effectively. And um, there is a new Christmas thriller that's being dropped this week. Um, on AMC Plus and Shutter, called The Apology, and Allison Starlock directed. She wrote it as well. This is her first um, feature, and I, I think you'll be very uh, welcoming to to the film, especially when we look at misfires like Black Christmas 2019. Um, what Allison has done with The Apology is really fantastic. It tackles some really, really heavy themes and does it effectively, does it creatively, um, both, you know, subtle and overtly. It, it merges it all together. And from a Christmas standpoint, she was very cognizant of just how important uh, set design was and took her cues from Bob Clark's Black Christmas as well as Joe Dante's Gremlins and stuff. And, and what she's got. It comes out next week, like on where, where is uh, it coming I out? I think like on it's VOD on. Uh, see, I think it comes out this Friday in select theaters, um, but it should be available on Shutter and AMC Plus for streaming right away. Um, okay. Very much worth the time. It's, it's very seasonally appropriate, very emotionally powerful. Um, you know, I 
wasn't expecting what a what a gut punch it, it, it provides. But, you know, when we talk about films that I think deliver and kind of giving voices to uh, female filmmakers, it's awesome to see films like The Apology getting made um, and getting picked up with 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 pretty wide distribution. That's pretty fantastic. And, I, you know, I agree with you. I wish the 2019 version was that type of film. And unfortunately for everyone involved, it was just rushed and just so disjointed and um, unappealing and unfun and just hard. It, it was just like chewing broken glass. It, yeah. I think it's like if, if someone wants a movie that has what that movie has to say, but done effectively, then better watch right, out. Right. Go with that one. You know what I mean? It's it's a much better um, iteration of that of that kind of theme and, and the, of that message, um, because it's actually uh, not painful to watch. Um, yeah, it's, you're right. Because I was going to use the analogy, like to me, the idea of seeing that movie again is like a bit like being dragged naked through a field of broken glass. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I'm like, yeah. no, no, thanks. I think I have a copy because like I'm I, when I first saw it, I didn't seem even seen in the theaters because so many of my friends that saw it were like, you're not going to like it. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, but I but I tend to like just buy it oh, horror yeah. movie that comes up. So I bought it and then I remember watching it. And I was just like, this is about coaster sized. I think it's sort of because I'm never going to watch it. You know, I should give it to someone I don't like. Merry Christmas. Enjoy. Um. Well, uh, so in closing, what do you got planned for the holidays, Matt? What are you What are you doing for Christmas? Anything special? Well, anything fun? You know, this year with the book being out for you know the first time, uh, I've got two more trips in December coming up. I'm going up briefly to the the northern New Jersey, New York area for a horror, uh, or actually, it's a holiday horror market. Um, There'll be some folks up there. I'll be signing some books and, and, and meeting some, you know, uh, attendees of, of the show and stuff. It'd be a good time. And really interestingly, uh, the week of Christmas, I'll be going down to Atlanta, Georgia, where not only the video drum VHS store resides, uh, which is awesome, but, uh, the Plaza theater is having a screening of, um, Santa Claus, Santa Claus versus the devil. And it, it should prove to be a great time. And I'll be there prior to the show selling some books as well. And then I'll be kind of driving back up for me. That's like a 10, 12 hour drive, but I'll get back up for the mm-hmm. Christmas weekend. And from there, I'm looking forward to just um, relaxing for the first time in a little while, watch some Christmas horror and, and kind of, um, you know, in, enjoy what the season has to offer. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about your book. The book is A Scary Little Christmas. It's a, a history of Yuletide horror films, 1972 to 2020. Have you thought of like, do you think you'll do like an updated version a few years from now? or, or? Like a revised edition? Yeah. I do. And, and I'm kind of excited about it. I'm excited because, you know, not only yeah. are we currently enjoying this revival of the subgenre, some great stuff coming out. Um, there's about like 20... Christmas horror films that came out in the past 14 months. Um, there's another yeah. five slated for the first quarter of next year. So I, I think already we're positioned such that we could definitely revise 
um, inject some more, you know, historical elements to some newer stuff that's coming out, which is equally as important, right? You know, get some of these um, reflections of the films when they're kind of new, I think is a lot of fun too. Because uh, it's always great yeah. to see what folks have to say after the film has a life cycle of 15, 30 years. Um, you know, we've seen that with Gremlins, right? We, we see Joe, you know, fortunately, yeah. Joe Dante at the time, 84 to 85, spoke a lot to the media. So we have his impressions of the film at, at that juncture. But he also still talks about the film every so often, which is awesome. So we get to see how he feels about it. He's such a as a champion of right. cinema and movies and film and filmmakers. And, you know, I mean, I think if you're a f- lover of movies, you have to love. I totally agree. Day, so. I, I mean, he's <laughs> the quintessential, you know, cinematic advocate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, totally. Well, Matt, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And, uh, and I love the book and I, I hope it becomes a tradition for a lot of people. Cause I know for, for me, I, I can see myself now every sort of, you know, Halloween's over, grab Matt's book. Which ones am I going to watch this year? So um, so thank you for uh, for putting two years into to finally creating a Christmas book, just like Krampus. That's just for me. <laughs> hey, Kevin, I, I can't thank you enough. A, for having me on the show, but 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 B, for enjoying the book that much um, and, and for giving, you know, the, the opportunity to to talk about it at length here and um i wish you and your husband a a very merry christmas as well and i hope you guys have some um you know great celebrations and 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 some more christmas horror fun before the uh new year oh we've got all kinds of christmas horror ahead yeah we've got a list and a stack it's gonna be i'm gonna introduce him to the uh the the mickey rooney silent night daily part five that's right brian usena was on the show talking about the silent night daily night movie he made and he says to me, um, you know, I was so determined to make sure that movie had almost nothing to do with <laughs> yeah, fucking Christmas. And now I look back at it and I don't know why I was so stupid. Why didn't I make it more about Christmas? Everybody likes Christmas. I was like, I don't know, Brian. You tell me it's your decision to do it. Like, it was so funny to me that he was like, like oh christmas means like the total the, the grinch about that making a christmas horror movie and now he feels the exact opposite that's right about it. that's right <laughs> well, thanks again man i'll talk to you soon okay you got it kevin thank you you've been listening to kevin lane spill your guts with host and filmmaker kevin lane kevin lane spill your guts was created by kevin lane and produced by cindy mclean the Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, 
retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.